0: Welcome to Episode 307 with my guest, professional basketball player, Royce White. Today's show is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy company. Talkspace makes it easy to connect with a licensed therapist handpicked just for you for as little as $32 a week. Using Talkspace, you can text, audio, and video message your therapist and talk about your life, what's keeping you up at night, or even that annoying coworker. To sign up or learn more, go to Talkspace.com slash m-i-h-h and to show your support for this podcast use the code m-i-h-h to get thirty dollars off your first month talk space therapy for how we live today i'm paul Gilmartin. this is the mental illness happy hour a place for honesty upon all the battles in our heads From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. Hopefully, it's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out, fill out a survey. Maybe we'll read your survey on the show. Um browse the forum, uh, you can support the show financially through that page. see books that we recommend, uh, all kinds of stuff that uh, most of which I'm forgetting right now. oh uh, I've mentioned the last couple of episodes that we have added Patreon as a way um, for people to uh, do recurring monthly donations, and uh, it also allows me to give you rewards based on the level of donation. Uh, that you're doing. For instance, a couple of things that we added recently was, uh, uh, you get to hear, uh, audio of me reading Herbert's Shame and Secret Survey and another one is audio of me reading DJ Voice's uh, Shame and Secret Survey. So it's a lot of fun and, uh, I'll put the link on our website to that and all the other, uh, things, um, we talk about on here including advertisers. But, uh, It's www, why do I even need to say that? It's patreon.com slash mentalpod, and that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. We've got some interesting stuff this, uh, in addition to an amazing interview with uh, Royce White, who I think uh, might be my favorite ambassador for uh, mental health. Um, We read a, a listener's description of a really intense flashback. Um, and at the end of the show, there's two happy moments that when I read them the first time, which actually was today. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was just the headspace that I was in, but I just broke down and I started crying. And so, um, we, we have those and just a lot of great, great stuff. Um, I really like a lot of the, um, the surveys from, from this week. I want to kick it off with a couple of, Um, emails. Um, Naomi wanted to know, uh, she doesn't struggle with mental illness, but she wanted to know how can I help the cause? And uh, I wrote back and said, these are just some off the top of my head, but educate yourself about it. Talk about it. Ask questions of those who struggle with it. Write about it. Uh, and especially support people one-on-one. Let them know that you're there for them. Don't try to fix them, uh, you know, or say something to improve their mood or attitude. Just sometimes the best thing is just silently listening to them. If they're comfortable, hug them, hold them, cry with them. Um, even uh, ask them if they want help making appointments for a therapist or a psychiatrist. And if they're comfortable, accompany them. Um, so those are just some off the top of my head. Uh Oh, I love this one. This is from um, Melissa, and she writes, "Uh, Hi, Paul. I was reminding my husband this morning that he's overdue for a physical. Then it hit me. Why in the hell is that we're supposed to get our physical bodies checked once a year, but nothing, nothing even close to a mental health checkup is encouraged? Even during a physical, my doctor never asks me any questions about how I'm feeling. What good does it do to have a functioning physical body if a person is walking around with an untreated mental health disorder. One of the best emails I think I've I've ever read. Thank you for that. Um, I also got an email from um, Jack, and uh, I'm just going to condense it a little bit, but uh, he was having a ton of problems with generalized anxiety disorder, and he was on a CBT, waiting lists. He's only able to speak with a counselor once a month, and he was really starting to, to to feel it spinning out of control, the anxiety, and was afraid that he was going to kind of lose his, his shit at work and maybe even lose his job as a result of it. And um, uh, I suggested, uh, again, I'm not a therapist, but I did once cook a pork roast um, while uh, we showed a movie starring Burt Reynolds. And, uh, I said, you know, it might be chemical. Um, you might, in the meantime, try seeing an MD, uh, maybe a psychiatrist. And, uh, you know, still, I'd encourage you to do, do uh, to do, 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 do <laughs> to do, do talk therapy either way. But, uh, Jack then emailed me back and he said, uh, quick update on my anxiety. Uh, I went to the doctors and he prescribed me some beta blockers and it's only been a few days but the anxious thoughts have just completely evaporated it's incredible what a small tablet can do uh and i asked him what i'd never heard of beta blockers being uh used as as uh, a treatment for anxiety and he said uh apparently it slows down the body processes processes and reduces the accompanying adrenaline surges and uh and then his anxious thoughts instead of just ping-ponging around his brain they pass so that was cool hey i want to give some love to our uh our sponsor uh daily energy um i went into uh a health store uh, a little while ago and i knew that i wanted to get some stuff that had you know superfoods and a bunch of other shit and it is so intimidating going into health food stores. For one, at all costs, I want to avoid the owner and his eight-foot-long beard and sandals. Um, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I'm just not ready to talk to him yet. Uh, I need to absorb his visual person before I can I can go that far. But um, they have a product, uh, Spring of Life has a product uh, called Daily Energy. And it has, first of all, it has... The same amount of antioxidants as ten fresh servings of fruits and vegetables. Um, it contains superfoods like wheatgrass, raw uh, cacao. Is that how do you pronounce it? Um, spirulina. Um, it has uh, digestive enzymes like pre-bi- prebiotics and probiotics. You take one a day, and it's just a—it's a super simple way to practice self-care. So today, just for listening, you can try it for yourself and save 30% when you go online to getdailyenergy.com slash mental. That's 30% off at getdailyenergy.com slash mental. Uh, why not love the way you feel again? Check it out and get 30% off now at getdailyenergy.com slash mental. And again, we'll put all these links on the, uh, on the website with the episode uh okay a couple of struggle in a sentence surveys and then we'll get to the interview with uh with royce uh hoyt shares about his depression it's like drowning in an inch of water because i don't have the will to roll over my god that is such that is so dead on uh, he also wanted to know where he could find episodes about bipolar disorder uh start with the brody stevens episode but um in our, in our website search box, type the keyword of whatever topic you're looking for, and then those episodes will come up. Uh, a guy calling himself Don't Belong as uh, a sex crime victim, deals with anxiety, and he gave us a snapshot from his life. I'm a 29-year-old male. I live a normal life on the outside, but on the inside, I struggle with having been molested by three different people when I was younger two females and one male. Then later in life, I was drugged and raped by a female friend of mine. Nobody knows I was molested, and I'm afraid nobody will believe me since it's been so long and I seem so, quote, normal. And I just want to say we believe you. We believe you because we know what a myth it is that only only men uh, perpetrate uh, things. And all of us survivors, male and female, know how difficult uh, life can be in the wake of those things especially when we stay silent so i hope i hope you find somebody that you can open up to because you deserve compassion and help Uh, Jules writes about her love addiction i will love you until you have drained me of every ounce of compassion empathy and patience this is so great About her codependency, neither of us can stay away long enough to feel better. Snapshot from her life. It felt better to hear you sobbing about me leaving because it's the only way I knew that you cared at all. Thank you for that, Jules. Nini Noni New uh, writes about being a sex crime victim. Hearing a song with his name in it throws me into a vortex of depression and anxiety that lasts days. So many people don't know. What a minefield triggers are for survivors. Fighting off my Stepford double uh, shares a snapshot from her life and her love addiction. Um, to the guy I just met, I want to say, You don't know I exist, but I know where you live, your family's names, and what car you drive. I'll secretly stalk you on social media for the next four years. When I'm finished with you, I'll find another poor bastard to quietly obsess over, fucked up part is i'm happily married to a wonderful man who has no idea i I'd do this i would give anything to stop thank you for that thank you very much for that uh, and we have an episode too um with with somebody who shares that and i'm trying to remember we used a pseudonym for her and i'm trying to remember the name we used um and then finally this is a happy moment from Samara. And she writes, I was feeling shitty, as is typical these days, and I was going to a friend's house to watch the Gilmore Girls revival. When I arrived, she had made me a tea and warmed me some PJs to change into. I remember, after a day of being ignored and going through the motions of the day, I felt so loved and cared for. I felt that happy glow in my chest. She also got me a ginger lemon cake as an early birthday treat. During the last episode, we sat on the floor, fully sobbing and sharing the cake, holding each other. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate.
1: So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness
3: to the next person's house and you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so
0: I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help.
2: I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay.
3: I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy
1: that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then.
0: That, that option just evaporated and I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. Really appreciate you guys uh, coming coming out here and supporting such an important... Uh, cause, how about a hand for uh, Megan Parkansky putting this whole thing together? She is, she is a one-woman wrecking crew. I mean, where she gets the energy? Bipolar. I have no idea. <laughs> but she has been so incredibly supportive of the podcast from the beginning, and um, I just, I'm, I'm so amazed at how she's been able to put this together. And thank you to all the people. Who've helped put this together. And uh, I want to give some thanks to uh, one of our sponsors, uh, Acadia Healthcare Treatment Specialists. uh, When you or a loved one is suffering from addiction or mental illness, knowing where to get started and who to trust for help can feel daunting, intimidating, and frustrating. In response to an overwhelming need for pre treatment consultation, Acadia Healthcare has created a team of treatment placement specialists providing a free service designed to connect individuals with the treatment programs best suited to their specific needs. Treatment placement specialists have an up-to-date information on treatment modalities, affordability, and the accommodations specific to your needs. In the case that the services needed are not provided within the Acadia Network, at no cost to you ever, the team will work to ensure treatment needs are met, regardless if it was at if it, if it is with an Acadia provider or not. Help is as easy as going to treatmentplacementspecialists.com. I think that says .com. I folded the piece of paper right there. Yes, .com. Uh, for detailed information on services and contact information for your regional treatment placement specialists, once again, that's treatmentplacementspecialists.com. Uh, uh, so um, by hands, how many of you are familiar with uh, the podcast? Pretty much, pretty much everybody. And by hands, how many of you just lied <laughs> because you didn't want to hurt my feelings? Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, as I said, I'm very glad uh, that you're here, and I'm really, really happy to have uh, our guest. Um, I. Have been trying to get him for a while, and Megan, being a superstar that, that she is, uh, she was able to arrange for, for him to come in to do this. Uh, you know him as a professional basketball player, uh, or I should say most people know him as a professional basketball player, but we know him as a champion uh, of our cause and, and one of us. Please welcome Royce White.
2: We one. We solved it.
1: We solved it. I
0: have one. Oh, and there's another one here too. Look, we got too many mics. Yeah, more mics you know, okay. than we need. Uh, you're asking yourself, why did Royce and I dress identically? <laughs> <laughs> for the for the listener at home, uh, Royce looks like he just uh, came from a fashion show, and I look oh, like wow. I just came from the Salvation Army.
1: I, I like your I like your attire, Paul.
0: Thank you, Rice. Um, so many things to to talk about. We were having having a really nice conversation backstage. We were talking about um, race, mental health issues, the current climate here in the in the states today with all this stuff that's that's going on.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, your uh, dealings with the NBA and your professional basketball career. But where I think I'd really like to start. Is talking about um, your life as a kid. Um, you grew up in Minnesota. Uh, give us kind of a, a feel for what life was like uh, for you as a kid.
1: Uh, Twin Cities, you know, is diverse place. Um, grew up in a single mother home. Uh, was an only child until I was about 12 or 13. So um, that's a you know has its own type of effect on your development. Um, Big family, diverse family, um, true first generation Mexican heritage, as well as uh, norwegian and, and Welsh, as well as black obviously and um, you know growing up was a lot about sports, uh, but my mother did a good job of keeping my eye on uh, social issues and um, as i you know walk through being an adolescent and being a prospect athlete um, I always took all of those experiences and looked at them from a societal lens Mm -hmm. taught me a lot
0: Uh, at at what age did you realize that you had uh, physical gifts that the average kid didn't have
1: I was like a late bloomer Um, you know nowadays in the prep sports circuit there is this overwhelming um, presence of Scout services, mm-hmm. where they're like ranking kids that are in the sixth grade. Like he's the best sixth grader in the country. It's like how many sixth graders have you seen play basketball? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it, I, I wasn't one of those kids. They were already doing it when I was in the sixth grade, but I wasn't one of those kids. Um, it, it wasn't until I was probably in the eighth grade, going into the ninth grade and, and then um, ninth grade to 10th grade. And that summer, I, I was a part of the Nike Circuit. Uh, which is Nike's uh, seating ground, you know, mm-hmm. kind of pipeline. and um, Is that
0: kind of similar to the McDonald's thing that they, that
1: they would do? Yeah, that's do? one game, but Nike has an entire program where they fund multiple youth teams around the country.
0: Oh, yeah. I watched that documentary yeah. on the guy that... Sonny Vaccaro they, and yeah, George Rafferty. got
1: that started. Right, right. right. So, yeah, so you interacted uh, yeah. with him. Yeah. It was do you awesome. feel
0: like that documentary was accurate in its portrayal of him?
1: I think there's a lot going on in in sports attire world. It's it's sticky business. It's a tangled bowl of spaghetti. Yeah, no, I think I met I've met George before. I like George, um, but I was also 15, and I was also very impressed with the idea of Nike, not only as a as a brand but as a company. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not so impressed now in mm-hmm. my later years and the things I know about, you know, explain how, how the shoes are made and yeah, yeah, things that you just it's hard to ignore once you know. Uh, But as a 15-year-old kid, you're like, oh, George Raffling.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like a a parquet floor version of politics. Right, Yeah, 100%. Um, When did you hit your growth spurt?
1: Or was it just uh, kind of progressive? It was progressive. Uh, When I was in ninth grade, I was probably about 6'3". And then over that summer, I was about 6'5". And the next, by the time I was... My, my 10th grade summer, I was probably 6'7 already. So,
0: For those of you that have never seen Royce uh,
1: play basketball, uh, he's 6'8", what, 260,
0: 240?
1: Yeah, I, I flirted with 270, 275 okay. for a while. Um, yeah. But I've been 260. I'm probably 260 yeah. now. Uh, but he can handle the basketball like somebody who one
0: six two. 6'2". Um, Thank you. Which, wouldn't you say, it was one of the things that uh, made
1: you... Uh, who, who you are yeah unique uh it was it was definitely one of the selling points or one of the main topics of focus when it came to my game and the way that the nBA was recruiting me or the way that the NBA saw me um, it, it was ironic because i was I was unique in another way as well with talking about anxiety openly and publicly yeah, yeah. Uh, and I would you know not to two my own horn i would i would I guess I would say that. My physical abilities and and my skill set at that size was so intriguing to them that they overlooked what they would later deny. That Uh, makes sense. uh, Your
0: anxiety, you mean? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Let's talk about the anxiety. Um, There was an event when you were 10 years old uh, that that you uh, attribute it to. Can you
1: share that with us? 10 years old, I was in a tornado on a bridge. Mm -hmm. Um, That was probably my first... Encounter with trauma uh, oh, I was thinking of the the thing at, at the practice i didn't know this oh, other thing Oh, yeah there's there's plenty of th- oh you're, I was we got eight. time for all of them, dude, I was eight yeah I, I was eight then, yeah, my best friend almost died he um he had what they thought was an activity induced asthma and it actually ended up being uh, a birth defect where um, his arteries were being compressed by uh, the tubes in his lungs or something odd and uh At that age, even in the fourth, fifth grade, our coaches were running us like college kids. You know, we'd have to do suicides, if anybody in the crowd knows what those are. Brutal. Yeah. Tell tell, tell them what it is. 30 seconds, free throw line, line, baseline, half-court baseline, other free throw line, line, baseline, baseline to baseline, in 30 seconds. Now, to put it in perspective, in college, we do it in 30 seconds. Like, when I was at the... Iowa State University is 30 seconds. Even in the NBA, it's relatively 30 seconds. So in the fourth grade, it was probably irresponsible to have it yeah. be in 30 seconds. Yeah. Either way, we, we made it through it a lot of times. A lot of times, guys just vomited and faked an injury and things like that. Well, you but know,
0: fourth awesome. grade is the age to begin uh, learning how to vomit. It's, of course. you know yes. To be responsible with your
1: vomit. But go ahead. But, you know, uh, yeah, we were, we were doing our suicides one day and, you know, my friend, you know, he, he often struggled with the exercise because of what they thought was the asthma, but today, that day was different. You know, we were doing it. I remember we all do this thing where we look down at where everybody else is. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how you gauge how hard you're working because you don't want anybody to be just beating you. Uh, and I remember and looking. And you don't want to be the last guy guy Oh, the last guy runs again. Yeah. So I remember looking down to the left and I could see it on his face was just like this, like drool. And they made him run again. And as we came through the line at the finish of that one, he collapsed. And they had to rush into the uh, emergency room, spinal tap. I was one of his best friends at the time, so I was behind the ambulance, and we thought he, was, he wasn't going to make it. But he did. They had to do open-heart surgery and put some metal wires in there. And As an athlete going on, that I mean, that would be traumatic for anybody, but as an athlete going on where you consistently get put back in those situations, I remember telling my high school coach at times, my college coach at times, and even the NBA at times. Like, when we go to do conditioning, when I step up to that line, my feet go cement. And it has nothing to do with me being afraid of, of running. My mind goes back to that day where I almost saw that, that kid die, you know? It's like your,
0: your body has its own agenda. For sure, yeah. uh, What were some of the other events that you think have affected you?
1: Well, now looking back on it, is trauma is very relative. Very individual. There were probably a lot of things that, that affected me. I remember my first panic attack was at 16, came from marijuana. Um, those, dude, those are the worst. Weed-induced panic attacks. Wow. The worst. Yeah, I had a full out-of-body experience. Um, literally watching myself panic. Watch my, watching myself think I was going to die. And uh, the panic attack was so severe, like, for the next two to three months after that, I would have panic attacks probably three, four times a day. What? Yeah, and then it kind of just dissipated, you know. Um, what, what, what helped that come? I don't just know. Just time? Just yeah, body self self healing it. Would so. you
0: have that thing that a lot of parent, people experience, where you would be afraid you were going to have a panic attack, so you would work yourself into a panic attack? Oh, for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a you know atypical cycle for people with anxiety and panic yeah. disorder. Yeah. And uh, uh,
0: doctors always say that a panic attack will not kill you, which a lot of people. Uh, don't know because it feels like they're dying that's what they say that's what they say
1: yeah, well I mean we'll talk about that more later but I think you know science you know we got to be more committed to science before we say things like that yeah um, you know panic I was a firm believer in that when I first found out I had panic attacks that was <clears throat> one of the things that really gave me comfort was doctors saying that it couldn't kill you until I was at the ER one time and they said that Okay, well, a panic attack can't kill you singularly, but over time, if you have general anxiety and you have elevated blood pressure over six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, that will kill you. Why you gotta share that bullshit with us? (laughs) It's just the facts. I I can't give you anything other than the facts. I'm just fucking with you.
0: Sorry, Um, I'm sorry. uh, Oh, and I was so looking forward to sleeping tonight. Sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, what was the, was there a thought you wanted to finish? No. Okay. What was the thing on the, on the, on the bridge? The tornado on the oh, bridge? Oh, yeah.
1: You know, just a typical thunderstorm that progressed into a tornado. Mid-bridge. Perfect place to be. Perfect place to be. Mid-bridge. I remember cars were, I was with my godmother, and I had two god sisters and, and her husband. And we were coming from an Old Country Buffet. Right. And, uh. Yeah, storm, like, you know, they they come on fast. Mm -hmm. You know, it goes from dark sky, no rain, to it's death coming, you know. And we're on the bridge, and these two, uh, the rows of cars have pulled off to the side on the bridge, which I didn't understand. I mean, it was a tornado. Like, if the bridge goes down, you guys are in the water. Yeah, you're in the worst place possible. My godmom was like, we're not staying on the bridge. We're just going to drive through. So I remember thinking in the back, like, we can't see. There's no visibility. We didn't even know the bridge was still there in front of us. But she wasn't gonna stay on the bridge. Um, but again, like the, after that, and, and now looking back on trauma and how anxiety works and how PTSD works, like when there's a thunderstorm, I still get a, a small twinge of like being eight years old in a tornado on a bridge. What, d- describe physically and mentally what
0: you, in that moment, um, is, are there, is there something that you're imagining, what's happening in your body? If you can...
1: Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes, you know, you get that visual, um, that real vivid visual of being there uh, in the car or on the court or, or wherever it is that your trauma was, but a lot of times it's more subconscious. You know, I remember times where I'm literally sitting there like, okay, it's, it's, not, it's not a tornado. I know it's not a tornado, but my body won't, won't accept that.
0: Because it sounds like one, right? It's like the beginning yeah. of the one, yeah. the, the hard rain and the dark sky. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, give us some some other moments from childhood or adolescent adolescence that you think have kind of informed uh, who you are, whether it has to do with your your mental health uh, or not.
1: Um, well, I think the the best I would say asset that I had growing up was being in a very diverse place. Um, and seeing multiple uh, groups, racially, culturally, uh, try to navigate some of the same struggles. Mm-hmm. And, and you're talking about Minneapolis, St. Paul, or your extended
0: family, or both? Both, Okay. yeah. Well, my extended, yeah, both. Yeah. But your big family get-togethers must have been the most amazing collection of
1: food if people could cook halfway decently. No, it was, it's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, and yeah, like I said, it just you know growing up in that that type of diversity just helped me later on, you know, have uh, an an easy time being empathetic. So, what
0: being around the the different uh, cultures that you were and different ethnic groups, what were some uh, stereotypes or insights that somebody who hasn't Experience that kind of diversity might not know. Somebody who has been living
1: in a bubble. It's strange. I, you know, my family's unique in a lot of ways. I think um, by the time my generation had come around and seen the diversity backwards in our family, they had experienced more of the first-hand um, rejection to, mm-hmm. in, to integration. Right? Like. Just because of the times? Just because of the times. Okay. And you're 25? 26? Okay, yeah. Like, my Mexican grandmother was first generation. Her parents were Mexican immigrants, and there was a time where her family disowned her for marrying a black man. Same thing on my Norwegian grandmother's side. Um, Now, she had some other problems, too, like alcoholism and uh, some other things that were going on with her where her family kind of distanced herself. She was from a place in northern Minnesota called Duluth. Um, and, and they were, like I said, first generation from Norway. And Was she drinking glug? I, probably. Yeah. Is
0: it a glug or glunk or what, what? How is it pronounced? I just remember I, people saying, "Do it. not touch
1: it" because it is I'm not the worst thing it. you've ever. I'm not going to butcher. It.
0: Okay, but go ahead. But,
1: anyway. Yeah. So I, I mean, the, they had already experienced that. So you know, we were already getting a taste of the diversity from the people who were more inclusive, yeah. rather than like the, you know, like the family gatherings were like yeah, we don't like your black family that much. You know, yeah. they, they had fought against those stereotypes already, which also helped me.
0: Did, so did, would it be fair to say that you had an appreciation that uh, things had, had changed and, that, and you didn't take for granted uh, that that there was uh, um, more harmony than there had been previously? 100%. Yeah. 100%. I mean, just, just a little bit that we talked backstage, I've, I'm so struck by... Um, at such a young age, um, how aware you are not only of uh, the world as a whole, but um, the ability to put yourself in other people's shoes and imagine what their experience yeah. is is like. Um, you, where do you think that comes from? From from your upbringing, your family, your mom. Um, do you, do you think? what you've been through in terms of your own mental health has
1: uh, somehow contributed to that. Yeah, no, I think that's key. Um, I mean, I think my upbringing had something to do with it, uh, but I think when you experience anxiety or panic um, and, and you go to a place psychologically that feels like death, um, you, know, you know, death, you know, f- type of fear, mm-hmm. um, it, it allows you to again very easily be sympathetic and, and compassionate um, because on your way to feeling like you're dying, you feel a whole number of array of emotions like you know uh, being alone or, or uncertainty, um, you know being scared of what other people think. Mm-hmm. So you know that, that whole progression to being in full panic uh, definitely al- allows me to be able to look at everybody else in the room or anywhere and go, yeah, I know what it feels like to be scared. And vulnerable and powerless. For sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And and let's try and make it so you don't have to feel that way. Yeah. Let's commit to that. Yeah. Um, What are some things about having
0: uh, anxiety disorder or panic attacks that somebody
1: may not realize who's never experienced one? Uh, I would say that, you know, the physical nature of panic, and and that's kind of the struggle I had with the NBA is, you know, a bunch of, men from a different era, um, believing that mental health and anxiety is all psychological in nature. And um, contr- controllable by attitude? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's, you know, if, if you walk into an ER right now and tell them, put out the sheet for heart attack, for symptoms of a heart attack, and pull out the sheet for panic attack symptoms, they'd mirror each other exactly. So I mean, that tells you how, how visceral and physical. Um, not only anxiety, but mental health can be in general. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that's probably the biggest misnomer is that uh, mental health or mental health conditions aren't physical. Mm-hmm.
0: Does, it, does a panic attack ramp up for you or is it just like a switch turning on?
1: I've had it both ways. Yeah. Um, I've had a progression of, of panic, but uh, I've definitely had those moments where you'll just be sitting there and having a great time. You know or, or what you would think is you know in, in, a, in a great mood or or having a, a a great day and boom, it hits like that so uh,
0: have you been able to identify triggers or there, does there not seem to be any
1: particular thing that that triggers it sometimes um, no it's not particular you know uh, in the beginning, I had a lot of health anxiety um, and, and I think that that's probably something that a lot of people have that they don 't talk about is just the fear of not knowing their own body and, and mm-hmm. where their health is, um, which is a, which is odd because people say that, or if you look at the definition of anxiety, it says irrational fears. Mm-hmm. There's nothing irrational about being scared of your own health because we see people drop dead every day for shit they had no clue that they mm-hmm. were dealing with, right? Yeah. So it's not really that irrational, but you know, I, I definitely had some of that in the beginning where I was like, oh, when was the last time I had my lungs checked or a stress test? And then mm-hmm. as you're an athlete, and uh, you start to move up the the ladder and how serious sports becomes, then you're introduced to like, how much health really is a factor, so.
0: How many times, and this isn't meant to be a joke, how many times when
1: you were running wind sprints did you think of Len Bias? Never, I didn't even know about Len Bias until I was oh, okay. 18, okay. 19, yeah. After that, after, I mean, yeah, I still don't think, I mean, it's, Len's story is just uh, a tragic one, but but not shocking, you know, it's okay. just shocking because of the nature of how good he was and, mm-hmm. and the expectations people had of him to be a player um, that would excel and be a very elite professional. Mm-hmm. But there's people who die from their first, you know, experience with cocaine every day.
0: Yeah. So. Um. Oh, I guess I didn't know whether or not it was where whether it was decided that cocaine was a contributing factor to his uh, heart attack, or whether it was a genetic thing, or whether it was they had pushed him too hard during the sprints. I don't think there's been a consensus yet, but our brain doesn't need that to take the ball and and run with it. Uh, When was the last time you had a uh, panic attack that was pretty heavy?
1: Um. Within the last month. Yeah. Yeah, I I get them once a month. When um, we were talking backstage about the the police incident, mm-hmm. uh, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But you know, after that, I was pretty much having them consistently back on a once a day type of basis. Wow. And how long would one last? Thirty, forty-five minutes. Um, really? I, one time, I had one last for like five hours. Those are the scary ones. Because if you look it up, you Google it and it goes, okay, 45 minutes, 30 minutes, that's typical. Once you start creeping in like four hours, you're like, do I need to go to the ER? Because this isn't wow. what they're saying a panic attack is, right? So, but, uh, you know, th- that's gotten better as we've moved away from that event. Um, but, yeah, once a month, I definitely just have one out mm-hmm. of the blue.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um. Is OCD
0: something that you uh, deal with? Because it's documented that you, you know, deal with it, but uh, apparently it's, that's just yeah, BS. No, I was,
1: was going to say when you, when you talked about the way I was dressed that it's definitely 100% attributed to, number one, my OCD, and number two, being marginalized. So those are pretty much the two reasons why I dress the way I do. Yeah? Yeah. Talk about that. I mean, OCD is, like, all about order and, yeah. and, and you know, um, certainty and uh, being able to predict, you know, and, I mean... Minimizing the unknown. Yeah. I mean, putting this on every day is, like, the easiest thing. Yeah. Just go to my closet and go, okay, that color and those shoes and that belt, and here we go. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: It takes all the guessing out of getting dressed. Uh,
0: what... Talk about uh, dressing due to the issue of feeling marginalized?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, well, just with my experience with the NBA, I got a very significant taste of old guard capitalists being very intimidated by young progressives,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, especially young black progressives in an in a industry where they commodify young black males. Um, and as much as they run campaigns and talk about how they want their players to be good patrons of the community and uh, affluential, they really don't. They really don't. Affluential brings rebellion. So
0: could you expand on that a, a yeah. little bit more if you're comfortable? Yeah for sure. I mean it, it for instance could could you give us some, some concrete uh, examples so we can uh, picture a it a little better.
1: I'll give you a good example. So in the in the draft uh, I don't know people watch the draft, now they televise it, Mm -hmm. and they have that uh, Chicago combine where everybody's there watching the players go through these multitude of tests, and what they don't show you at that combine is that on the last day, they take all the players in the hotel room, and there's an entire floor where teams have their rooms where they interview you for 30 Mm -hmm. minutes apiece, Mm -hmm. and usually there'll be eight or nine teams that interview you. Mm -hmm. So um, in my interviews, because I had already expressed this interest, this kind of eclectic interests, what the college sports writers would call eclectic, you know, he likes the Beatles for some reason, like, I thought, (laughs) I'm so offensive. I know, right? I'm like, I thought the Beatles were universally liked, but. How did they import the albums into your ghetto? Yeah. It's 100% what they were saying. 100%. So, you know, but, but, you know, ironically, that was a big thing about me coming out of the draft is like, not only does he have this unique skill set, but he has all these odd interests for a young basketball player. That is so fucked up. Yeah, it is the worst. What did that feel like There's, when you heard that? Media is bad in general. I mean, we were talking about that backstage. Yeah. Media is like the Red Herring, right? But sports media is the worst. Yeah. Yeah. They're, you know, they're dictated by the old guard capitalists and what yes. they think, and that's what they put out. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, the media is like your dad that was a dick. The sports
0: media is like your dad's friend that's an even bigger dick. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, we, we you know, uh, so when I went into the rooms to do my interviews, um, that question would always come up like, yeah, we well, hear you're into, like, you know, like, why, why do you have Frank Sinatra on, tattooed on your arm? Like, what's the significance of that? And I'd be like, I mean, I like him. I like him. I, I really like him. Uh, I like music. Uh, and, and then and, and what I discovered is as we got into more conversation about, because I, like, I, I just go no holds bar with them. Like most of the guys that are getting drafted, you get coached by your agents to go, you know, don't talk too much. Don't give them too much. Just say, you know, just keep it real on the surface. I was just in there just letting loose, you know, like talking to five buddies. I didn't mm. care, you know. Yeah. That's, I, it would make me anxious to live dishonest. Yeah. So I would just say whatever the hell I want.
0: So would it be fair to say that you, that in that moment you uh, kind of used that as a forum to say, you know, this is not the the way that you you think it is without directly pointing the finger and saying you guys? Yeah, I, didn't, I wasn't even
1: thinking of it at that yeah. time. Later on I would look back and think of it like that for yeah. sure. But I was more like in the room just like saying like talking about being interested in business mm. um, and, and entrepreneurial ambition and, uh, you know, the opportunity for harmony between humanitarian uh, ambition and entrepreneurial ambition, and what capitalism could look like in the future, and 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 I didn't know it at the time. Oh, you are so on the FBI watch list. Whoa. It's not even funny. Well, they're looking at me like this, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> he, thinks, he thinks we're about to fund his humanitarian entrepreneurial hybrid. Yeah. So I was already giving them red flags then, but. Uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I mean by marginalized. And, and that would only continue on and manifest in different ways going forward as I actually got drafted. I don't know why they drafted me, honestly. I mean, I was so... that, that, that The skill set thing, like, they're so intrigued by that that they drafted what they would think is a red herring. It's like they draft, drafted your body despite your mind. For sure. Uh, which is fucked up.
0: It's super fucked up. <laughs> it's super fucked up, especially when you consider how important the mind is to the athlete and, and how accommodating that mind and, and, and taking what is great about that mind for yeah. the team and allowing that to help the chemistry of the team. Or did, they, did they think that you were going to be divisive within the team because you were so
1: opinionated? No, I think that, they, I, I think that professional sports leagues um, like their athletes on drugs you know they like really they well they they, they're okay with that they're comfortable with that you Mm -hmm. know they're comfortable with the guy having a marijuana habit that he came in with they're Mm -hmm. comfortable with the guy going through a rough patch in his life so he's turning to alcohol or he's turning to gambling they've seen that before Um, but but seeing a guy who comes and talks about mental health and talks about Capitalism's effect on mental health and greed and, mm-hmm. and these type of ideas that yeah. bothered them you know i see so so what you 're saying
0: is they don't they don 't necessarily love that somebody 's on drugs, but if somebody's going to have a problem, they would prefer that it 's that type 100%. of thing so okay. okay
1: and also not only because it 's not like they they want the player to be on drugs, but um, there's a very punitive nature to those things. And they can be identified, they're quantifiable. You
0: tested this on this date. Exactly. You know, you did this on this. Well,
1: even more so than that, it puts a player at a disadvantage, it puts a player um, in trouble. You know, they always talk about Ron Artest, like when they talk about mental health and the players that have advocated for mental health, they talk about Ron they talk about him running into the stands in Auburn Hills and fighting and him thanking his psychiatrist and all that. And all of that's well and fine, and that's the story they want to put out to try and make it seem like they're doing right by mental health. But the reality is, is that Ron had got himself in a situation where he was in trouble, and they were able to dictate to him how they were going to support him. Precursor, and that's how they do most of their athletes. Yes. Like, you had, a, you had a bad piss test. Mm-hmm. Now, now we got you by the nuts, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. So you're going to do what we tell you to do, and, and then we'll say that we're supporting you. Yes, yeah. and, and you'll, you know... Pretend as if this was uh, something that you would have done so on your own. And when the team physician or the team psychiatrist tells us that, hey, listen, this guy is an addict. It's probably likely that this won't be his last joint. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. well, we'll find you anyway. We'll Mm find you fifteen thousand. You know, you do another dirty piss test. We'll find you fifteen thousand, and we don't really care what the team physician Mm -hmm. or psychiatrist have to say about science or support Mm -hmm. or anything. So, what what is the Vibe then among your fellow
0: players when you guys yeah. are are talking. What percentage of the players feel the same way that you do? Clearly, yeah. they aren't all as outspoken right. uh, as as you are. Right. Um, what did, what did, is yours? Kind of the
1: prevailing. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think I think I was willing to take it to the wall. You know, like the, you, you'll never see LeBron James get up on the stage and talk with you candidly about the things that he would say behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they've been coached, like I said. There, there's this whole piece that agents play as intermediaries in, in professional sports to, to kind of um, keep athletes' opinions suppressed. Uh, but but it's definitely consensus. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no guy who's been using marijuana to cope with his you know emotional imbalances that Gets a fifteen thousand dollar fine for smoking a joint is like yeah this makes sense, you know it's nobody likes it but not too many people want to speak out either so.
0: If if you could be the NBA or all of professional sports mental health uh, yeah.
1: director, what would you what would you like to see? i I'd, I'd say the same thing that I'd say for mental health going forward in general, um, not only for sports just. For a society is that we have to um, honor science and honor support and let those two things guide us. Um, you know, humanity, we, we've shown ourselves that we'll fuck up science, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of times yeah. while we're trying to figure it out. Yeah. I think that's a natural part. Especially
0: of, mental health science because yeah, there's so many things that really there's yeah. not a number for. Yeah.
1: And, 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 and that's okay. I mean, that's part of science. Um, but along that road, while we're fucking it up, we have to commit to support. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't just fuck it up and be like, "You're on your own" when we fuck it up. So, so how would that work? Let's let's take a
0: hypothetical example yeah.
1: of uh, a
0: guy who's getting in a lot of uh, fights. Yeah. What What would you What would you do with the guy who agrees to get some type of counseling, yeah. and the guy who doesn't agree to get some type of counseling? Yeah, that's rough. Um, I mean, th- that... I mean, would it be counseling? Would that be what you would recommend? Maybe there's something else that you well, I would... I think everybody should have counseling. I, I agree. I think it's the most patriotic thing you can do. I yeah. really do.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I, that's, that's what I was going to say, is I think the awareness um, is is lacking to the point where there would be somebody who would deny counseling, right? So we have to address that first. Once we get over that hurdle, now it's not about whether he's getting counseling or not, it's about how an organization is looking at him getting counseling. And that's what I really argued and, and advocated for. Is It's not that if I walked into the Rockets front office and said, hey, I have an anxiety disorder, will you get me a psychiatrist? Of course we will. But when it comes back time to sign my contract again, is me needing a psychiatrist looked at as a liability or is it looked at as just a general medical issue? Like, there are guys that had their knee, two knees, Grand Hill, mm-hmm. two knees busted, the, the guy has no ACLs. We'll sign him, no problem. Guy has an alcohol addiction, psh, you're out of here. You know, you might even, we, We'll find a way to get you out of here before your contract's up. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the, the, the fight that I took on. So,
0: so do you think it's because the, the mental uh, struggle isn't as quantifiable and testable as the um, knee is, or do you think it's because of
1: prejudice about mental health, or both? I think the quantifiable one is a bullshit argument. Yeah. I just got to be honest, you know, uh, you know, I was in those rooms a number of times with owners and guys who were advising owners and general managers, and they kept saying, well, you know, we, we have, you know, a timetable if a guy twists his ankle, that he could come back and all of it. I'm like, come on. At the end of the day, even physical injuries, you twist your ankle out there on the court and you have to sit out for two weeks, there's still a verbal test when you come back. There's no doctor saying his ankle is ready and you just go play. Right. Right? Yes. There's, there's still a verbal test where they ask you, They go ahead and run, mm-hmm. and then when you get back, how did it feel? Right. Right? So that's bullshit. The quantifiable thing is bullshit. Yeah. And, and it's something that they're using as an excuse mm-hmm. because really mental health is very quantifiable. Mm-hmm. It's just quantifiable by the people who know what to look for. Right. Um, and, and those are people that are trained in the mental health field. And as much as the mental health field still has to, to advance and, and learn more, They've done significant work in the mental health field. I mean, the, you know, the, the rates of, of improvement of symptoms for people with mental health conditions are up in the 80 and 75, 85 percentile you know, um, range. Uh, it's just about us getting people to accept that they need counseling and also getting people to, um, how do we get them to those places? and Affordability and that goes into yeah. universal health care and a number of other issues. So.
0: Is there prejudice against guys that go uh, to see uh, sports psychologists? Absolutely
1: not. It's why? Why do you think that's different? I don't know, then it's the weirdest paradox.
0: Do you think it's because it
1: has to do with their game, and and they're yeah, like, well, that's okay. I have no clue. Like literally, I, Paul, uh, they ask me that all the time. It's like, well, why is sports psychology so embraced, or yeah, I'm like. I have no clue how they've separated mental health and sports psychology. You know, maybe it's because that's seen as
0: a strength because it benefits them. Of course. It benefits
1: the organization. Yeah, I can see that. You know, because one of the sports, the things that sports psychologists tell you, like, it's really its own, it is its own thing, you know, because their whole thing is how to optimize you on the court. And the mental health conversation, broader scope, really puts an onus on establishments or governing bodies to be more diligent and more sensitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, sports psychology is set up in that great old American hero story that whatever obstacles are thrown in front of you, you overcome them. And that's character. Right. And that's right. a big problem for the mental health conversation.
0: It you know? really is. Yeah, It really is. And especially because we keep that on ourselves to begin with. For sure. To then have somebody you know, taking on that mean voice in your head yeah. And doing it. Uh, so, what would you do hypothetically with the guy that's getting in the fights or is showing up drunk, but doesn't want help? How many chances do you give that guy to turn down uh, uh, counseling?
1: That's con- that's, a, that's a tough one. I mean, because they would have to they would have to do that, yeah, wouldn't I mean, they? Well, I mean, I think you got to be you got to be sensitive again. Yeah. I mean. You have to, you can't ignore the fact that there's a stigma out there that exists for counseling. So for a guy to deny, although for creating a space where, say, instead of saying, okay, we're going to fine you, we offer counseling. Um, Even though that is a good step, Mm -hmm. you also still have to be sensitive to the fact that a lot of people are going to be like, I don't want counseling. And on the back end of your policy and of your action, you have to show a guy that accepting counseling won't be used against him. So yeah. there's a whole conditioning process that would have to take place that would probably take a decade. Yeah. Uh, very much like the military. Exactly. Oh, we
0: care very much about you as long as you don't want to move ahead. Yeah. So, but,
1: but you could see why they're so apprehensive. Because yeah. I'm in the room saying, listen, this might take a decade for us to condition not only the professional athletes, but the, pros- the prospect athletes. Yeah. That yeah. when you come in, you can reject counseling a couple of times, you know, yeah. until you get to a point where you say, well, now you, you can only reject counseling two times. And, right you got to create time for that to grow and develop. Or else you're just
2: and like, governing
1: bodies are not comfortable with
2: yeah. uh, the gray
0: area, I They're would lazy imagine. And yeah. I wish right now that we had a, a WNBA player uh, who could compare what it's like yeah. in her league. Um, what do you, have you talked to any WNBA players or any yeah. professional female athletes about it's what interesting. The like for it's them? It's interesting.
1: The head doctor for the WNBA is a psychologist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So that tells you where the prejudice and the stereotype lies on gender and mental health.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. The women, of course, need an emotional doctor to oversee all of their... <laughs> it's fucked up. I don't agree yeah. with it. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, I'm not saying that it, it's not helpful or beneficial to have an integrative... No, but, the fact, that it, uh, but the fact that it exists for women and not men, it, yeah. it goes back to what I'm saying about the conditioning processes. You're saying, yeah, we'll give you counseling, but you're really sending a message that if, if you take it, you're a wuss. Yeah. yeah. In so many words. Yeah. Which is wrong. Yeah. So. Um,
0: let's, let's talk about race. Yeah. Um, I asked Royce backstage uh, if you can think of any moments or vignettes in your life that um, have to do with race, uh, would you be comfortable sharing any? And, and what did you say to me?
1: Yeah, I had an experience probably eight, eight nine months ago, uh, I was with my wife, we were coming out of Chin, of all places. Uh, Which is a restaurant in? Minnesota, Minnesota. St. Paul. Okay. Roseville to be specific. Um, and we were sitting in our car. We just decided we were going to eat in the front seat of the car. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember that uh, a cop car just, you know, kind of came in front of the car. And this was right around the time a lot of the uh, police killings were happening. I think there had been like two or three in that month. In Minneapolis? No, no, no. Just in, oh, okay. in the country. All right. In the country. So, you know, it was, it was a very, very observing good. time for civilian police relations. Mm-hmm. So I remember sitting there and the first cop car goes by and I'm like, you know, you get a little uneasy right away. No, you get a little uneasy. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah I get a little uneasy. Yeah. yeah, So I got a little uneasy, and uh, and, that, and that didn't mean you personally. Yeah. I meant a person of color. Right, for yeah. sure. Yeah. So I get a little uneasy, and, and but you know, I settle myself and don't let the anxiety take over. Yeah. You know, because that could very well happen. Um, and a second car goes by, and then my wife says, oh, "Okay, I'm going to move. Something's going on over here." You know, and. I was like, no, don't move, because if it has to do with us, the worst thing we could do is move, Mm. which there would be no reason why it would have to do with us, but that was just my first instinct is let's just stay still. Uh, And then I was thinking in my head that it's very troubling that I have to think this way. Really fucked up. When when looking at police and and the situation between them and us as civilians. And by the time I got that thought out, a third cop truck had pinned in our SUV, and he got, got out with his gun drawn. Yeah. Like I, I remember like as soon as I got that thought out it's like you know when you go into that space in your mind where you're thinking and you're not you know you're not really looking at what's in front of you mm-hmm. the first thing i saw coming out of the thought was his gun. Yeah. Des- it, describe what you what you felt in your in your oh, body wow. and what was going through your mind if you can remember it. I mean I've well, the first my first thought was i'm about to die. Uh, you know it, it it really it really reiterated how insensitive we are to the human psychology, for me. Um, you know, sitting there in the car, I, the only thing I could think to do was just not move. Like, if they're going to shoot me not moving, then then okay. Um, I pray to God that, that my wife didn't get hit. Um, but, you know, with all do, you know all that being said, and as fucked up as them, you know, having a mistaken identity, which is what it ended up being, it was a mistaken identity. I'm sitting in the front seat of a car. We were talking backstage. Like, have you ever heard of a seat adjuster? I mm. could be five eight, six eight, or four eight. You know, sitting in the front seat of a car. But, um, and I'm sitting there, and you know, I just think to freeze. And as the, the the officers actually handled it better than some of the tragedies we've seen, but that bar isn't in a good spot either, right? <laughs> So they actually got Perfect to a point, point where they didn't shoot me, and they pulled me out, and they asked questions. Of, Who are you? This is your ID. I'm like into my back pocket. Can we go in and get it? Of, of course. You guys have eight guns. I'm unarmed. You're I co- think that would be a terrific idea. Yeah, you, yeah. Please go into my back pocket and get it. And then they look at it, and they're like, okay, this isn't the guy. We this is the fucked up part of our job. And, uh, you know, they handled it very well. Like, I had to thank myself for them not shooting me which is odd because the trauma of them putting me in the position Mm -hmm. uh, goes undiscussed. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have great empathy for the black man who would have gotten out and ran because I can't say that my thought process at least two or three times wasn't get out and run. I mean, when you pull a gun on an innocent person, and I know the police don't know whether they're innocent, but innocent people know whether they're innocent. When you get a gun put on you, I don't care if it's a police or a mugger or whoever, your first instinct is to run or to get out of the the line of of fire. So, you know, it just put a lot of things in perspective for me, not only with, you know, human psychology, once again, and mental health, but specifically cop and civilian relations. Uh, The other thing you were saying backstage is uh,
0: that you also understand from the police perspective how, how difficult... Uh, their yeah. job is and uh, mentally and emotionally uh, how trying their job must must be. Can you expand on that? Yeah,
1: I, mean, I think it's, it's, it's a conversation that goes to a, an even darker place than this big mental health conundrum that we face or, or racism in general. Um, when, when you think about the function of police in this country and you think about uh, who dictates how they function in this country. Uh, the inaction to improve it um, is is so minimal that you start to teeter with the idea: is if, if it is it blatant, right? Is the way that police function in this country, and is um, the the notion that we continue to see unarmed people shot, specifically people of color, is that intentional? Because where is the action to combat that? There's almost like an accepted casualty rate that we've right taken or accepted, or is it a casualty rate that we've implemented? Uh, and, and that's a, a government conversation more than civilians, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it it's scary, you mm-hmm. know? It's, it's scary because um, police and trauma, I mean, there's nobody in this room that could show up on the scene and see a three-year-old's head removed from his body and show up the next day to work with a gun in his hand and not be a ticking time bomb and these police are asked to do it every day you know, there's a dead child in this country every day that police respond to first uh, and that's what I mean and, 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 and then the, the, the to add the whipped cream on top you have a media that makes money off of the divisive nature of the conversation rather than the pragmatic one mm-hmm. and put police against black communities when really they're both suffering from a trauma and a lack of mental health uh, support you know?
0: Any other kind of uh, vignettes or moments um, you'd like to touch on? Uh, in, oh, you know, can we just for a second go back to the, to the moment when they had the guns drawn? Yeah. Do you feel that they, other than the mistake of the mistaken identity, do you feel that the way it was executed was, was wrong? I mean, if they, if they had gotten a
1: report that there was an armed person... Yeah. Well, I think that's what it was. I mean, okay. I know where you're going with that. Right. It's a tough conversation. Yeah. I mean... And these are the ones we need to have. I mean, the element of guns in this country is not a civilian choice. We live in a militaristic economy. Mm-hmm. And, and anybody who, you know, the NRA and all these different groups come out and they try and rationalize these... Jesse Ventura, for example. I love Jesse. He's, you know, outspoken, but he's way off on the gun issue. You know, he talks about the Second Amendment being about civilians arming themselves against a rogue government. You know, your six-shooter isn't going to do shit when they come with drones or when they start rounding people up. You know, mm-hmm. so, you know, we're way off on those issues in some spots, and, you know, it's a tough conversation to how the police respond to a person who's armed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you got to be sympathetic to that because at the end of the day, like I said, they have families mm-hmm. and a lot of them have had trauma. A lot of them have seen fellow officers shot. Um, so, and, and I think it was a situation where, um, the person who they thought I was had had a history of, of, uh, armed felon type felonies. Yeah. But, but again, you know, I, I think that government has to take on the responsibility of giving citizens the benefit of the doubt. that's their role Um, it it, it doesn't make any sense to while trying to keep us all safe traumatize half of us Mm -hmm.
0: would you say if you had to say which one bothered you more in that instance is it the way that was handled out or the fact that you knew this was your reality as a person of color and that scared you so much which one do you think is more fucked up or should I not even be comparing the two?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's tough to compare. I, I always take it from the, the, the mental health lens. Yeah. Like I said, I'm multiracial, and, and there are a lot of white men that get shot by cops too. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's something that the media has definitely tried to talk around yeah. in order to hype up this black, white cop thing. Like, you know, the, the, the picture that's being painted is this white Nazi cop who's in the locker room, like, I'm gonna kill the next black guy I see. And that might exist. But there are a lot I think of,
0: it's a, a, a small, in my opinion, yeah. I think it's a small percentage of Definitely. the, of the Definitely. gun shooting deaths.
1: Yeah, are there, are there on the fence racists who are a little more trigger happy on black males? Yes. Of course. Yes. Of course. Yeah. But are there people who are really scared themselves and just happen to have a gun on their waist? Th- that is I think what, that's the majority of what we're seeing.
0: That's what I think, too. And, yeah. and if you've met uh, enough cops, a lot of them come from violent homes. And there's a, uh, I wouldn't I know if I, it would be correct to say, a need for control, but there's something comforting. Yeah. Um, and I just wonder how much baggage some of them are bringing before they even get yeah. the cumulative PS, PTSD of, of being yeah. on that type of I mean, job. The,
1: the thing that scares me the most about the police demographic is that we see a lot of veterans. And we're talking about a veteran Demographic that yield to twenty two suicide a day rate, which really is uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you know like how many ve- i mean if we have a suicide problem with veterans and then veterans are becoming our officers yeah. again the, the inaction is yeah. must be blatant i, I got to take it like it's intentional right. from government and policy makers I, I, until you do something to prove mm. me otherwise yeah. I think that're you're, you yeah, you're setting you 're setting police. Mm in a position intentionally against communities um, to do your dirty work. So.
0: I, I guess I'm, I'm less, uh, and it's probably because I'm not a person of color, yeah. I, I just always thought that it, for them it's the path of least resistance, but um, I, I don't know what it's like. Um, I, I haven't experienced what uh, people of color have experienced. So, Who
1: was it? I I think in Kaepernick's description uh, and in his latest protest, which I feel differently on Mm -hmm. in in different ways, but I I think the general um, idea of the protest makes sense. But when he talked about the training of police officers, and he talked about the idea that people, cosmetologists, have more required training hours than police do, that that puts it... And this is a fact. I mean, go look it up. This puts it in a perspective like, once again, are you guys in Washington really that fucking stupid or is this intentional? And, and I got to think it's intentional because I know these guys aren't dumb. Because if they're dumb, then we have to criticize the Harvards and the Yales and the West Points. We have to criticize the way that they're teaching the, the politicians they're producing. And I, and I don't think that the Harvard's just teaching people to be you know, disingenuous towards hu- human life so I think there's an, intention, there's an intention there. And that's dangerous to say, and it's scary for a lot of people, but yeah. prove me wrong, you know? Yeah. Any other
0: things that you would uh, like to touch on? Actually, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to um, uh, have the audience members ask Royce any question uh, if, if they'd like to. We're going to get a, uh, a third microphone and hand it out to to you guys, and if you wouldn't mind, um, before you ask Royce a question, if you have a fear or a love that you would like to uh, share, um, do th- do that as well, and uh, don't, be shy. Uh, don't be shy. Yeah, please don't be shy.
1: Occasionally, I have a fear of public speaking, but I try to get through it. So. Thank you, thank you. Um, so I followed. Um, what was going on with, you know, you and the Houston Rockets when you were drafted. And first off, just want to say, I think it's really cool that, you know, you're willing to just kind of be so outspoken about it, trying to bring awareness to the issue. So that's, that's, that's awesome, man. Thank you. Um, So do you think that what you went through and sort of the publicity that it got, do you think that it, it changed how the NBA treats mental health in any way? And I just want to preface that with like, In general, it seems like right now the NBA is one of the more progressive major sports leagues. You kind of look at NFL with the suppression of concussion stuff, you look at MLB with the steroid stuff. It it seems like the the NBA is doing better, but I just want to get your thoughts on that. I would say in addition to me getting a glance at how greedy and insensitive hyper-rich people can be to common struggle. I also got a very good glimpse at how great they are at not letting you know that's who they are. Mm. Um, and the NBA is, like you said, very good at making their brand look like it's progressive, but it's not. It, it, it's it
0: not. almost seems like they're okay if your public outreach is limited to hospitals and kids. <laughs> I'll give you an example,
1: like so, so mental health, there's definitely an undertone right now of what are we going to do in the next collective bargain agreement about mental health? Right, we've had players now that have quit in the middle of their forty million dollar contract. We've had an owner who may or may not have committed suicide. Like, the, and, and there's this media buzz around mental health, and it's not going to be long before that arrow is pointed at us. Um, so, you know, to give you an example of of that, what is really a DC type of political, you know, PR thing. You, you can't have an anti-gun violence campaign and not have a mental health policy. Amen. So, Amen. So when, you, so when you run one with Steph Curry and LeBron James and, and you use the fact that there is a superficial, media-driven conversation about gun violence in black communities, and you use your black star players to speak out against gun violence, when on the back end you don't give any support to your black players' mental health, and subsequently, any of their extended communities, you know, you're just full of shit. You know, it's just, you know. I
0: finally remembered what
1: the, the question was that I wanted to
0: ask you is, when you were meeting with those teams when uh, you were at the Combine, uh, you shared with them that you struggled with anxiety, which I think 99% of the players wouldn't have, have done. Yeah. Um, can, you, can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had, I had shared it in college still. You know, they okay. had ran a story on it in college because I, I actually slipped up. It was an accident. Mm-hmm. Um, so that whole advocacy thing was kind of thrown on me. Slipped up in sharing in, in that you In a college started? interview, I slipped up. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I was just sitting down with an interview. We were talking. It was after a big game. I think we had beat Kansas or somebody like that, and they were ranked number five. And, oh, okay. And they were like, you know, well, what's your routine? And I told them, like, well, I don't eat with the team ever. You know, we have pregame meals and college teams mm-hmm. together. Before every game, we eat in the mornings at the hotel or wherever we're at together. And I never eat because I'm so you know my anxiety gives me you know uh, topsy you know turning Mm -hmm. stomach. So I slipped up and told the interviewer that, and he's like, "What are you talking about anxiety? What you mean? You know what are you talking about?" Oh, so they knew then when you met with the teams, this was no secret. Oh yeah, everybody knew. Okay, that was the talk of my stop. In addition to me being eclectic because I like the Beatles. And in addition to me being a unique skill set, the yeah. talk was that my, my draft stock had this incredible range because, not because of where my talent should land me, but what the owners and general managers thought of this mental health thing. Mm-hmm. So there was already that piece going into the draft. Um, and yeah, once I got there, it was like I, I could not say it. But I will tell you another interesting piece of that whole process and, and why you said 99% of players wouldn't have done that isn't only because of the stigma and it isn't only because of um, the fear of being, of being judged or, or, or those type of things. There's also a layer of people who are put in position to keep us from being honest. And those are the agents in that case, right? The agents tell the players, listen. You got anxiety, we know you got a weed habit, we know you got an alcohol problem, we know you come from a torn family, we know you got emotional issues. When you get in there, just talk around it. Get, my, get me my commission and Thank then we'll you. deal with it. And even more than yeah. that, mm-hmm. if, 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 if I know about it as your agent, it's, it, it's my job to communicate it to the owners. Yeah. And, and that means once I communicate it to them, the owners have to be accountable to it. And that ain't my role. All right. My role is to keep feeding the pipeline, you know, yeah. keep feeding the the, the, the wolf, so.
0: Mm-hmm. Any other questions for, for Royce?
1: Yes. Um, my name is Rudy Caceres and I wanted to ask a question about um, anxiety um, because for me personally with my anxiety, uh, very introverted, so I could talk to someone one on one forever, for hours, but it's really hard for me to be around groups just feels awkward. I mean, even, I can speak in front of uh, an audience, but being in a small group, and since you deal with obviously basketball teams having to be around um, a lot of people, how do you uh, deal with that? Uh, I get that question a lot, and it it, it, totally makes sense. Um, the, The thing that's most important, and I think that we're becoming more comfortable with in the mental health conversation, or specifically mental health conditions, is that they're very individual, um, and, and what would seemingly make one person uncomfortable may make another person totally comfortable. Like, I, I can't tell you how many reporters go, this guy doesn't even look like he has anxiety. How can you have anxiety? You go out there in front of 16,000 fans and are the dominant player. Well, that situation doesn't give me anxiety, but uh, sitting, in, a group of, uh, sitting in, a, in an office with a group of greedy owners gives me a ton of anxiety. You know and and that's just the way anxiety and, and mental health will work, and will always work until our science advances and, and we're able to pinpoint more specifically what we're mm-hmm. looking at um, are
0: Are there things in your life that allay your anxiety uh, does Does playing on the court give you a place where everything else falls away and you and you uh kind of get
1: in a in a zone where there isn't that yeah there's 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 some nuance there, I think that I haven't had a basketball game, and this, this is what I tried to explain when I was still on the, on the side of thinking that the owners just needed a, an educational lesson mm-hmm. and that it wasn't intentional. I was, you know, there was this conversation like, well, you have anxiety, but you know, how does it manifest? Because we saw you produce, and is there sometimes where it doesn't and sometimes where it does? And I just was honest with him and said, listen, I've had anxiety at the beginning of every game, the night before every game. So every game you saw me go out there and put up a triple-double or dominate players, I was dealing with anxiety. Now when the game started the anxiety kind of faded away, but did it really fade away or did I just find a way to cope within Mm the game? These are tough, complex questions that the mental health conversation puts on us and, and requires that we find answers to. No matter how complex it sounds, we have to find those answers like why is it that I could be in a game and still be having anxiety but find a way to cope with it in that moment and excel? Your agent must have hated you. Yeah, he, yeah. he gave I up. Mean, he stopped answering my calls like I mean, two months in. He was like, oh, fuck this kid. That That is the
0: most honest answer. I mean, that is such a noble way because it's, it's, it's the absolute truth. But most guys... would. Wouldn't have expanded it.
1: Absolute truth.
0: People would not have expanded it and given that it that that truth because you you would have said, "Oh, once the game starts, uh, I'm good." Because most guys have butterflies before a game, don't they? Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Wow. There's moments in the game where there, you know, there's this moment where players talk about being in the zone, Mm -hmm. and and I've I've experienced it where it's like you see the whole game in motion. You know, you see the other nine guys on the court, and it's like I described it as it's all one object that's connected and it's moving and shifting. It like uh, wow. I don't know if you guys ever watched the uh, the cartoon uh, Dexter's Laboratory. And at the yeah. end of it, at the end of it, they had the amoeba cartoon. It was like a little short. It's like an amoeba. It's, mm-hmm. it's just all ten guys are moving in this way. And when you get in the zone, you just know where you need to be and where you want to be, mm-hmm. and you can get yourself there. Um, but in those moments of that like euphoric feeling. It feels eerily similar to right before you have a panic attack. Really? It, I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's like an out-of-body experience, you know, but you're able to cope with it. I, and, and, and that might be because you have something to focus on as to where if I'm sitting up there in the balcony and I start to get that euphoric feeling, I'm like, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. And then I start to produce panic. Um, Do you think the endorphins of, of being in mid-exercise uh, help I would, uh, I, the science isn't 100% definitive yet, but I think there's a pretty good chance yeah. that that has a lot to do with it. Every doctor who uh, is trying to support or bring somebody through anxiety recommends exercise, yeah. um, and it shows great, you know, great uh, success, so. Yeah.
0: Any other questions for, uh, for Royce?
2: Hey, I just want to say thank you for being here. Thank you for your bravery in speaking up on behalf of all of us with some sort of mental health issue. You have very brave, authentic, honest ideas, and I respect them. Thank you. Um, And just, I've had one in my life, one, just one panic attack. Yeah. And I was a teacher for 24 years, and that panic attack was, I was pulled over for a rolling stop And you just, you discussed it completely. You know, you're, you're, it's just such a different feeling. And um, just to make a long story short, that panic attack, I just couldn't find anything. And I asked, oh, can I get out of my car? I can't, I can't breathe right now. And when I tried to get out, he said no. He closed the door. I waited and then they arrested me for assaulting him with my door. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And a a woman who was 37 years old, who had never been... I'm 42 now, but 37 years old, had never been to jail, had raised... I don't want to get emotional, but raised an amazing son. You know, um, I kept telling them, I'm a teacher. I have to pass a Department of Justice and FBI background check. I haven't done anything. Well, it has changed my whole life, one panic attack. And I can't pass... My record is expunged. I sued them. But it doesn't matter. I can't run for, for office anymore if I wanted to be a politician, if I wanted to be a, a leader in my community. I can't. I can't. I can't be a teacher anymore. And we need to take this to a legislative level. For I really sure. want to write to my senators and tell them, look what happened to me. You know, it's, it's, it's just, it happens everywhere. So thank you for your honesty and bravery and just keep going on behalf of all of us.
1: Thank you. I appreciate
2: thank that. You.
0: You you don't think the answer should be that women just shouldn't drive? <laughs> maybe I'm am I misreading this situation? Who who has another? And thank you. Yeah, no, thank you, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, uh, I think we have time for uh, for maybe one or two uh, more more questions. How about uh, you over there?
3: Hi, I'm Jennifer. Um, Hi, Jennifer. My question is really nervous, so if I shake a little bit, yeah. Um, my question is basically being someone of color. And um, we're constantly taught to be better. We're constantly taught to hide our emotions, put on that game face, go out and kill them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I can't say I'm hurt or I'm sad or this hurt my feelings. I'm supposed to laugh it off and keep moving. Yeah. So my thing is, I, I, I'm pretty sure that basketball is you know, that type of environment where you're, you're encouraged to laugh it off and, 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 right. and keep going. Um, how, do you, how do you navigate that? Yeah. How, do you, how do you overcome that? Like, well, well, what part, do you do? What else do you do? Well,
1: a great, a great asset that I have, like, is that I'm just kind of a fucking asshole, you know. <laughs> I mean, honest to God, like, you know, where most people would go, I need to I need to be a little less honest because of the way it'll make them. Or I need to I need to shade the way that I'm just like I'm gonna say it. and If you don't like it, fuck you. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but but that's not like I'm not. That's not a a, a recommendation for for most people. Uh, I've taken though, it already. You, you too late.
3: You can't be that way because I mean for you as an athlete as you know multi you know yeah you know all these avenues open to you it's it's wonderful because you do have a voice. Yeah. But when you're just a regular person in corporate America, you can't go tell everybody to fuck off.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I... I you know? And I, and I understand what, what you're saying. Um, but but you got just to... The, just the nature of the fundamentals of, of what just happened here is that you said that individually. But there's a room of people here that probably feel the same way. Right? And, and that's where... Uh, And we were talking about this backstage about the American hero story and how that narrative has really shaped the way people think about their own life and and how that allows people to exploit individuals because you do feel unempowered and you do feel discouraged to speak out. And there's a story that constant adversity is the only way to build character. And you sucking it up and not saying something and biting the bullet or eating crow or eating shit is, is a sign of your strength. And that's not true. That's bullshit. That's the systemic goal to try and keep you feeling just the way you feel now. And if everybody in the room says, Mm. she's right, and they speak out together, that's a movement. Mm. And that's how it happens.
0: And I I have a question for you. Just so you can help those of us who who don't uh, experience your experience, can you give us some specific examples to help us understand more more clearly what you're saying? If you can think of any. I, I hate to put you on the spot.
3: Well, the, you know I deal with thousands of people on a daily basis, and you're, you're constantly in airports so you're dealing with all different kinds of nationalities and cultures and um, it's sad because there's an idea of what someone who's successful or cultured or um, dignified looks like or, or speaks like and I think everybody should have the right to take their kid to Disney World, you know what I mean? And not be um, treated badly because of the color of their skin, or because of what they're wearing, or because of where they come from. Um, and unfortunately, we live in a society, and I, I've done this for about 11 years, and I started when I was very young, so I started with like 20 and had braces and looked very very young but people were more respectful back then or maybe they hid it better now they're more emboldened and you know people speak to gay couples terribly they they speak to people of color terribly if if you're Mexican with you know four or five kids and you're taking your your kids to Disney World you know you're not entitled to help with your car seat and your 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 stroller and you know um you know help from the people who are put there to help you. You know what I mean? And it's like, why? Why is that the case? Like, why when I'm being nice and, and trying to help you as an individual, you maybe look at me and you speak to me completely differently than you would speak to my white counterpart? Why do you speak to me differently um, than you would speak to my male counterpart? Sure, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's just it's too much and you know when you interact with that amount of people you start to lose faith in humanity oh, no doubt. and I when agree. that happens you you start to like you're reaching for anything that you can find to say no that life is good life is worth living and and people are good and I need to go out and be better but that narrative is is kind of it's it's getting old. Yeah. You know what I mean like and, and it's excusing the It's excusing that behavior because it's like why are they able to get away with it? Why do why are we taught to be docile and submissive? Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm also of a Caribbean background, so that's very much my narrative. Be docile, be submissive, be passive. Yeah. And it's not helping me along in life and it it has not prepared me for the society that we live in now. And so I just, I'm just like, I found your show about two weeks ago. I flew in from Chicago to be here today. And I'm like, it was everything because people were speaking honestly and people don't do that. They don't do that. You can be close to someone. You can have a close relationship to someone and they still won't show you the inner workings of their mind. Right. And that, I think, is hurting our society as a whole. Like, I think that it's, it's diminishing the yeah. good things that we have in society. And, and you're having to fight harder and harder and harder to search for the good things in society. To search for a podcast, to search for an interview, to search for, you know, something to brighten your day. And it shouldn't be this hard. Yeah. You know, we shouldn't be just inundated with the negative in the world. You know what I mean? Like Yeah,
1: yeah like the like the like the
3: positive is just yeah, there should be a balance of yeah. it. Yeah. But there's not even a balance. It it seems like the bad things in this world are glorified. Yeah. And 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 just just out there. And I think that it's I know that it's having a Effect on us psychologically as a society, and we're not having conversations about it. And I think that that just it it gives it power. It gives it the silence gives it power. And I'm just trying to figure it out. Thank you,
0: thank you for that. How much longer are you in in town for?
3: uh pardon me. Leaving tomorrow. Oh
0: shit! Because I would love to to have you come as a as a guest on the on the podcast. I mean, yeah. w- what you said is is so important. It's so important. I'm I'm really glad that you were in the audience. But um, uh, stick around after the show because I'd like to I'd yeah, like no, to talk to you. I, I more. mean,
1: I think she, she what she did is she really stretched the stretched you know how we think about it and where we allow ourselves to go. And and, and this is this is like what what my nonprofit really strives to do. And I see a lot of search for the mighty. I'm doing a piece for the mighty now. So. You know, shameless plug for the mighty but not shameless there, at all. all right um but this idea that there is a collective um evolutionary psychology as well for humanity is a very real one and it's very there's a lot of historical context for the black community specifically with our history with with slavery and which is why white cops should be even more sensitive to black hostility is because there is a 300 years worth of of anger and, and, and distrust, and we don't acknowledge that. Like, we acknowledge it uh, in a metaphoric way, but not in a fundamental way. Yeah,
0: as if it ended in 1865.
1: Exactly, mm-hmm. and, and I think that what, what you said is, is the future for us. Is, is mental health um, the key to us evolving, almost, and, and actually changing the current from being us seeing an, uh, an abundance of negative and at least finding some balance of positive? You know, yeah. so I, I think
0: yeah. that that's important uh, thank you guys so much for, for coming out I really appreciate it um, Royce White everybody
1: thank you, thank you. Okay,
0: thank you. many many thanks to, uh, to Royce and everybody who helped put on the In This Together festival that was recorded I think about a month ago uh, here in, in Los Angeles and um, hopefully that's going to become an annual uh, annual thing. Um, before I take it up with some surveys, I want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways to support the podcast if you feel so inclined. You can support us financially by going uh, to either PayPal or now Patreon. Uh, you, you'll get rewards if you do it through Patreon. You can become a, a monthly donor for just a couple of dollars uh, a month and uh it means the world to me it helps keep the podcast going uh we always always need uh more money so um i understand a lot of you are strapped for cash and uh please don't don't feel guilty um uh i love ramen love it um you can support us by, uh, if you're going to shop this holiday season, click on the Amazon logo on our homepage, and that will take you to um, uh, one of two places: either books that we recommend, um, or you can click on searching Amazon in general. When you get taken to the, I couldn't have explained this worse. Um, when it takes you to the books we recommend, you'll also see a, you know, shop at the rest of Amazon and click on that. Also consider making that your bookmark. Then every time you shop at Amazon um, and buy something, they'll give us a couple of dollars and that, you know, that helps. Every little, little bit helps. Um, Give us a a rating on iTunes. That helps. Spread the word through social media. Uh, All of those things uh, greatly, greatly help and keep this going. I would hate to see the day when, um, I can no longer support myself um, from doing this i I don't know what I'd do, but there's a good chance I would show up on your doorstep and uh, and I'd shame you and that would be very awkward because uh, I'd make you toast me unfrosted pop tarts and uh, that's all I'd do. I'd lay around on your couch in my pajamas eating unfrosted pop tarts every day, maybe even drink sour milk just so it would give me gas and I'd punish you even more I don't like I don't like where this is going I don't like most where most of my riffs go um, but I really didn't like that one that one made me very uncomfortable um, you know another way that you can support the podcast and when I read an advertiser um, uh, don't skip ahead just give it a shot listen to it um click on the Go click on the link that we have because the more they see that you guys respond uh, to their advertising, the more they will advertise. And that money also uh, helps keep the podcast going. Um, So, speaking of sponsors, uh, I want to tell you guys about texture. Uh, As you know, this time of year, we're all doing some traveling, airports, layovers, a lot of waiting time. And you don't need to bring 100 magazines in your bag. With Texture, it's a new app. Uh, it gives you unlimited access to 200 plus magazines and some really, really great uh, magazines. Rolling Stone, Smithsonian, Wired, Surfer, New Yorker, People, Sports Illustrated. Uh, this is an especially good one, Consumer Reports. Uh, before you make a big purchase, Consumer Reports is a great magazine because they don't take advertising um, and so they're not biased. They don't. They don't mind tearing into a, a company that that puts out something, uh, or letting you know there's a company that's making something great. Anyway. Um, texture has gone beyond delivering just the magazine itself they've made it easy to find and enjoy the articles you want to read with daily recommendations exclusive interactive features videos and more texture is searchable so you can mark what you like check out back issues view bonus video content and they even curate articles and magazines just for you or whoever you're giving texture to this year why on earth Would you subscribe to just a couple of magazines when you could have all of the best ones on your smartphone or tablet all the time for way less? So right now, Texture is offering you guys a 14-day free trial when you go to texture.com slash mental. That's 14 days to try Texture for free when you go to texture.com slash mental. One more time, texture.com slash mental. Want to also, uh, give some love to our sponsor, Zip Recruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites, and now you can. Zip Recruiter already has nine million recipes. <laughs> recipes. I did dinner in a movie for too long. 9 million resumes you can search through in their database. You can add multiple people to your account to make it the most efficient for your team to find the best hire. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. It's a search engine for finding and posting jobs. You can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post it once and watch the qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. If you have any issues, ZipRecruiter's friendly and human support staff is ready to help. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. ZipRecruiter's website shows trending career fields, cities, and searches. And right now, you guys can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com first. That's ZipRecruiter.com first first. One more time, to try it for free, go to ziprecruiter.com first. Let us get to some surveys. Uh, this is the uh, aforementioned PTSD flashback I had told you about. Uh, this was filled out by bippity Doodah, and she writes, I wrote this down pretty much as I was coming down from a bad flashback, otherwise my brain loves to make me forget. This was triggered by an argument with my significant other, but it was more related to imagined fears than real life. The feeling is so deep, it literally swallows me whole. The panic erupts like a volcano, and there's lava and ash everywhere, and I'm no longer physically connected. I can't control my body, it comes in waves. All I feel is horrible, seething pain. I know these physical symptoms so well. I've been here dozens of times. Even the metallic taste in my mouth is the same. I try to stop myself from hyperventilating, but my body refuses. The spiral has started. The sheer momentum refuses to relent. My body separates from my mind. There is no love in the world, just absolute darkness that envelops me. I don't deserve to see the light. All I have is a memory of myself, begging to be loved, to be comforted, my cheeks flushed and wet, my eyes horribly swollen, but no one ever came to my rescue. I was left to die, abandoned entirely, not allowed to exist. My head hurts immensely, my breathing is so labored, I can't see, I move clumsily can't keep my balance almost falling i need this to stop i'm dying from the inside my breath is my own worst enemy i beg for air as my lungs can barely expand i finally stumble outside and sit on the freezing cement and it's the unbearable cold that finally awakens my body with air and so i retreat back into the house my balance is still off but i manage to climb into bed and get under the covers. Some tears still erupt onto my cheeks and the threat of escalating, but at the very least, I can, I can recognize where I am physically. I let out a few small sobs and my boyfriend comes over and offers a hug, but I refuse, pushing him away. He leaves the room and I start to write. Angry, hateful, hateful words fill the page. Things I think I feel about him, but I don't dare say, and yet it makes me feel worse, the anger that I write. So I start to focus on the sensations in my exhausted body, the tension in my abdomen, the pain in my throat, the tingles at the roots of my numb fingers, and this switch of focus turns on another light, shifting to the present moment. I realize I don't actually feel that way about my boyfriend at all. It's someone else that these things are directed at, someone who truly made me into a victim, and the anger dissipates into thin air. is replaced by love and compassion firstly towards myself and then towards my boyfriend and so i apologize to him for yelling at him in the car and saying terrible things to him i tell him i see how hard he tries to de-escalate our fight and make things better and make me feel better before i lashed out at him and then we lie down in bed next to each other and completely relaxed i fall asleep hugging him tightly with his hand holding mine. I am safe, and I am loved. I'll have to go through these steps again next time I'm triggered into a flashback, but with the proper steps each time, I come back to reality quicker and my body recovers better. These flashbacks feel terrible, but it's interesting to observe the escalating circumstances before they happen and how different things pull me out. Thank you so, so much for that. Um, I have never experienced a flashback, and you have made it easier for me to understand a tiny bit what that must be like. And um, I think all of us are grateful for you taking the time to to share that. Uh, This is a comment about the podcast from Ms. Precariat. Am I pronouncing that right? I don't know. Uh, She writes, I love, love, love the podcast, but just wish Paul would be super mindful to not, uh, when he does, sometimes too much, interrupt his interviewees and or need to make a comparison to his life. Sometimes is okay, like the one where the French-Canadian woman discussed covert sexual abuse. There actually were, were parallels to him there, but not to be a total jerk. I've been through every shade of sexual abuse and not every shade is the same. Trust me. I've experienced overt, covert, ritualistic, two-on-one, trafficked, and so much more by so many, and they all don't leave the same level of wounds. Just trust me on that one. Same with all levels of emotional and other forms of abuse. Again, I love Paul. I love the podcast. Just please have more respect for allowing your interviewees' stories to be told as they narrate. Let them finish their own sentences and let their vignettes stand on their own. Thank you very, very much for taking the time uh, to share that and to share it in such a loving, compassionate, and diplomatic way. And I hear you loud and clear. Um, And believe it or not, I'm not beating myself up. I don't know. Maybe Christmas arrived early. Uh, This is a happy moment from Dr. Shetologist. Love it. I defended my research proposal on Tuesday. On Sunday evening, I was getting pretty wound up about it. My office mate texted me and invited me over. She'd just gotten two kittens. We spent the evening just having an an unfiltered conversation about grad school life and my sense of impending doom. After a spell of pouncing around the room, one of the kittens climbed up on me. I started petting him. He somehow managed to pass out across my shoulder and steady himself by putting one claw in my shirt collar. He stayed like this for a good half hour. More kitten antics followed, surely followed, dulled the impending sense of doom. And yes, I passed the proposal defense. Isn't it the best when a dog or a cat or any, any animal falls asleep on you or, or near you and you just don't want to move, ever? Harvey Dent shares a shame and secret survey. He is um, in his 30s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, He's straight. Uh, He was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I was in my 20s and badly handling a breakup with a very long-term girlfriend. A woman I was friends with at the time wanted a sexual relationship with me, and I acquiesced though it didn't feel right. After a few times, I put a stop to it, which caused this then friend to sexually shame me. After a few weeks, things seemed to go back to normal until the first time I went to hang out with her in her apartment. I was drinking heavily at the time, a combination of the breakup and an alcohol problem, and suddenly my quote friend went from trying to persuade me to stop drinking, to buying bottles of whiskey for me and insisting on making me drinks. More than once, I passed out on her couch And woke up in her bed mid-sex, or with her hands down my pants, because I'm a male and she was a female. I wasn't even able to connect what was happening with sexual abuse, and blamed myself for drinking too much, for making her think I was into this by having a previous sexual relationship with her, and a host of other things. It wasn't until way after we stopped being friends, because I refused to be her boyfriend. And after she spread around to all of our mutual friends that I used her, led her on, and took advantage of her, did I start realizing that this was a form of sexual abuse? And had this very same set of events happened to a woman by a man, it would even be considered rape. Since my realization I'm angry both because it has soured me on sex, which is something I didn't have a healthy relationship to begin with, and because I don't feel comfortable calling it rape out loud. Because in our society, We're told men cannot be raped by women. Thank you for sharing that, Harvey. And um, I would call it rape. Uh, He's been emotionally abused. After my biological father's death when I was six, my stepfather took great pleasure in making me feel awful. He would steal and hide the last thing, uh, the last thing gift my father gave me would berate me, uh, I think there's a typo there, um, berate me about my physical appearance and emotional weakness, and once went so far as to drive me to a toy store, tell me to pick out anything for $50, let me spend an hour shopping only to be put back on the shelf, tell me I was stupid for believing him, and make me leave the store. These are only a few examples of his abuse. Wow. Wow. No positive experiences with the abusers. Darkest thoughts. I think about suicide at least twice a week. I wouldn't act on it, though I did make an attempt once in my 20s, but the thought is there. Darkest secrets. I've been an alcoholic since 17, but because I'm very functional, very charming, and very good at hiding when I'm in pain, people don't make the connection. That's the kind of drinker I was, and um, I hope you don't wait until you start losing shit and you're not high-functioning to, to get help. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Casual encounters where I am aggressively in control and never see the person after. Sharing this makes me feel ashamed of it. Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I was happy, but despite getting a good-paying middle-class job, marrying an amazing woman who I love more than anything and becoming... my um, goal. Oh, independent, Uh, I'm not. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like I'm complaining or whining about situations that are nowhere near as bad as others have experienced. You are not whining. You are not complaining. And we see and hear your pain, buddy. You're not alone. You're not alone. And what happened to you is... Is valid. This is an awfulsome moment uh, filled out by Crazy Deb's daughter. She writes: After my father and stepmom got custody of my sister and I because we lived with our with Deb, uh, our mother, we moved into a nice house on a tree lined street. We were probably about ages fourteen and nine at the time. One day Deb was coming to get my sister and I to spend the weekend with her. It was a nice day. The majority of the neighbors were out working in their yards. Deb, a.k.a. Mom, flew up the street 80 miles an hour in her fire engine red Chevy Lumina. She got out of the car and started screaming, Kathy gives Jack blowjobs! Kathy gives Jack blowjobs! Kathy is my stepmom and Jack is my father. The neighbors put down their yard tools, gathered up their kids, and went in their homes. Holy fuck. Wow. I hate to say it, but I wish I could have seen it. I know. I know that's fucked up. Uh, I love this name. This is a struggle in a sentence. Filled out by Marilize Ligawana. God damn it, I love you guys. Uh, He struggles with depression and alcoholism. And any comments to make the podcast better? I would love to see uh, you chat with a classical musician. As a musician myself... This is a facet of the music world that arguably has the strongest don't ask, don't tell mentality in relation to conversations about mental health and its unspoken epidemic. I would love to, and that is a great suggestion. And if you are a professional classical musician, uh, and you happen to be in the Southern California area or know you're coming, uh, shoot me an email. You can do it through uh, our website. Down and out and on the edge, shares about her depression. Uh, seasonal affective disorder? Major? Maybe both. While shopping for groceries, the happy Christmas music is mocking me. <sighs> yep. Yep. I think so many of us know that that feeling. A snapshot from her life. My manager asked me what I did to my fingers because they were all bandaged up from picking. I decided I was just going to tell her instead of making something up. I said, I have this bad habit of picking at the dry skin on my fingers. It's just particularly bad right now with the dry air and the holiday stress. She looked at me for a second and then said, yeah, the air is particularly dry. I had mixed feelings about the encounter. I'm tired of hiding things, but in this case, I didn't really feel heard either. Oh, well, baby steps. I put it out there and that's all I can do. So true. Good for you. Good for you, man. That's what we... If we want to... If we want to decrease the stigma, it's just going to take a million moments like she just took. So thank you for helping the cause Uh, these are three short surveys about people's experiences being hospitalized and I feel like these three in a row kind of give, I've read hundreds of these uh, surveys of the people's experiences being hospitalized and this these three I think are kind of emblematic of the breadth of experience that people have in uh, psych wards Uh, Darth Jader was hospitalized for two uh, suicide attempts uh, and a couple of other things. And he writes, as a patient, I think it helped more than I want to give it credit. I was only in for a week and it felt like it. Uh, My roommate was a recovering heroin addict who stabbed himself in the neck twice as his voices told him to. I felt more of a connection to him than any of the doctors I saw. Um, Stormy was hospitalized uh, for overdosing. Uh, and she's also been for other stays. And she writes, psych ward patients uh, are given unfair treatment and mental illnesses aren't taken seriously. For example, patients waited on the nurses to f- finish whatever they were working on before being helped or there was the nurse who used the same tone of voice a judge would use when speaking to a juvenile delinquent. Overall, I'd say, no, they weren't very helpful. One time, because I was homeless, I was sent to a residential facility that ended up being more harmful to me than being homeless. Thank you for sharing that. And then this was filled out by, uh, hope chest heart and, uh, She was hospitalized for trying to kill herself, and um, she writes, My roommate snored, and I couldn't sleep, so they moved me. The lady I shared a room with tried to kill herself many times. She was married. She had put a toaster in the bath. She was very sad and kept snacks in her bedside drawer. They put me on new meds for depression and anxiety. One of the anxiety meds made my left side twitch. One of the staff didn't know they switched it to something else. She was harsh and untrusting. A few people were super kind and shared their cigarettes with me. I lost a lot of weight despite eating and wore Hello Kitty slippers the whole time. The pants I am wearing today, I wore there. We did arts and crafts and it felt silly but relieving. I did two weeks in and two weeks out. My family visited me once or twice. The friends I was with the night previous to attempting did not. When I went to my apartment, the flowers on the trees had bloomed, signaling spring. It felt bizarre, like I was gone a long time, and I never felt like a shattered version of myself like that. It changed me in more ways than I can articulate. My mom says we talked about it, but we never did, even though I tried. Her version must look nice in her head. That was little more than ten years ago. And uh, she also adds that many years later, her mom went to the same hospital. Thank you. That was such a beautiful picture that you painted, or at least a moving, moving picture. All those little details, I love when you guys do that. Fox in a Blender shares about uh, his depression and anxiety. Writing in a journal and keeping it locked in the glove box of my pickup so no one is bothered by my, quote, problems. I hope you share them with somebody. I really do. I hope you take that leap someday. Uh, November shares about her OCD. Everything must be perfect or the world is going to end. Thank you for that. My last name rhymes with boner. Fuck me, right? Uh, Shares about living with an abuser. Uh, Living with my father. I didn't and do not believe in God, but I would pray my dad would die in an airplane accident every time he went on a business trip, which was, thankfully, nearly every week. And then she goes on to share how her father abused her, and uh, it's monstrous physical abuse. Monstrous. To which I say, uh, I hope you never feel guilty for thinking those thoughts and feeling those feelings. Um, Queen Amygdala, aka Wackadont, shares a happy moment. My mother's acknowledgement of my childhood sexual abuse by my much older brother-in-law, I was five, and between five and seven, and he was in his early thirties, had always been painful. She made many excuses for him, i.e. my sister had been pregnant, so it must have been tough on him sexually. Uh, boy, wouldn't it be nice to have somebody chime in there and say, you don't think it's hard on a six-year-old uh, sexually, having a 30-year-old on on top of her? Uh, he would never do that uh, to her, would be another thing she would say. After I came forward to her about the abuse, the only concession I got was getting to be in charge of seating arrangements at holiday gatherings. So when she began her decline into dementia and we were looking at family photographs, she pointed to him and asked who he was. I said his name and that he was the one who hurt me. She looked at me very sad and shocked and said, I'm so sorry. That was the only genuine moment of compassion I ever felt from her in 42 years. I'll take it. Wow, that is so bittersweet. That is so bittersweet. Thank you for that. Uh, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Biff, and she is bisexual. How old is she? Uh, doesn't say how old she is, raised in a totally chaotic environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. I don't remember it very clearly, but I was having to share a room with a male guest as a nine-year-old. My mother and my grandmother thought this would be okay because we only had two bedrooms and seven people in the house. He started touching my breasts and moving southwards, and I ran away in the middle of the night to my mother. I didn't tell her what happened, just that I had a nightmare. It happened again the next day or two. They're more blurry. I clearly remember some groping, but the rest of the nights are a blank. My mother read about it in my diary when I was at school. She later married the man. You know, I always try to wrap my head around any kind of sickness that somebody has and i know that your your mom's decision to do that is probably coming from a place of mind blowing emptiness and neediness but that is one of the hardest things i i actually have an easier time wrapping my head around a serial killer killing than what you just described your mom doing darkest secrets. Um, when I was 13, my niece was a baby, and I had to take care of her while my uncle and aunt went out. The baby was still breastfeeding, and like any breastfeeding baby, would reach out when she was hungry. I held her palm against my breasts and touched my nipples to them. I would have tried to have her breastfeed on me if she wasn't crying. I didn't know what I was doing was wrong, and I feel no attraction to children. This was about my own lack of sexual boundaries and lack of knowledge about consent. I live in a culture where women are not really taught about these things. Obviously, not all women in the culture go around abusing a little baby like I did. I was abused as a nine-year-old by my now stepfather. I am so angry at him and I hate him, but how do I have the right to hate him or think less of him when I am the exact same person? You are not the exact same person. No two people are the exact same people, but... Doing that is not even in the same category first of all, you were a child, your stepfather was an adult. yours was from a place of curiosity and um and not knowing his was a place of from from a place of knowing and not caring or being unable to stop himself and please don't compare yourself um to him that's that's um uh awfulsome moment and i hope I hope that you can forgive yourself because I mean honestly that that is so minor, and I wouldn't even classify that as abuse. I would classify that as you know adolescent curiosity. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by count my blessings um and then she lists the numbers one through ten and she writes yesterday i had three hours to wrap three christmas presents for my husband before he got home my ocd had other plans however i spent three hours wrapping and unwrapping the same present over and over again obsessing over straight lines and perfect angles my husband came home to find me rocking back and forth repeatedly counting to ten and crying beside his unwrapped presents I come from a strong line of women, my grandmother ran from the Nazis with two babies strapped to her, and my mom is a cancer survivor, and I can't even wrap a fucking present. It was only upon reflection that I realized that I am so lucky to have a husband who loves me and cares about me more than stupid presents. I'm also beginning to consider asking for help from a professional again, because clearly things aren't going well for me. I guess that is a positive too. And you are not weak. You are not weak. OCD is not a matter of self-will. Filling that out took strength. Listening to this show takes strength. A lot of people don't want to hear this shit. Struggle in a sentence filled out by Killer of My Own Dreams. And she shares... um, a suggestion uh please do an episode about vaginismus and i believe uh that w- was the technical term of the episode we did with erin i don't know if we used her last initial or not uh, if we did it's erin w and it was probably in the first year of the episode of the uh podcast so do a search um uh, on our website for either vaginismus or erin and see what comes up uh This fucking name kills me. I nap in my grandma's pants. And uh, she shares a snapshot from her life. My fourth grade teacher called my mom in for a conference to tell her that if I didn't stop worrying about getting perfect grades, I'd have an ulcer at age nine. And she struggles with codependency, anxiety, ADD, and depression. Man, man. Perfectionism is so corrosive. It is so corrosive. Don shares about his depression. I grew up and found my soul was full of holes, so I put my identity in those holes. Now I'm afraid to fill those holes because I fear I will bury my identity. And thank you for sharing that, Don, because I really wanted to read this and say, it will not bury your identity It will expand your identity. Your depression will still be a part of you that you will never forget. But more of your authentic, beautiful, present, passionate self will emerge. And you will be so grateful that you didn't just accept the holes in your soul as the totality of who you are. Mora um, shares about oh, it says uh, Mora is a male um, shares about his depression. Like, I know there's a light switch somewhere but I'll never find it. Oh my God, that is so fucking good. That is so good. About his OCD. If the skin isn't falling off of my hands they aren't clean yet about being an abuser. I wish I could find those children I molested and manipulated in kindergarten and sincerely apologize to them. And Mora is a, uh, is a teenager. And if you can't find those children to apologize, the best apology any abuser can make is to never do it again and to get help to make sure The chances are as good as possible that you never do it again. And then forgive yourself. Thank you for sharing that. The saddest, fattest dragon with no friends shares an awful moment. I completely broke down when I tried to make a casserole for Seder dinner and failed. The lentils in the dish had still not cooked properly in the oven, making the entire thing inedible. I was already over a half hour late and had people waiting on me to pick them up. I was stressed enough that without a conscious thought, I punched my head several times and ended up giving myself a mild concussion. I still decided to go, picking up my charges and went to dinner, where I didn't say much and made sure not to fall asleep. When I get back to my apartment, I realized that even though I turned the oven off, I left the casserole. I tested it, and it tasted amazing. Thank you for that. Uh, Another bad actor shares about his ADD. My thought process is like a feral wolverine. Wow. That's so descriptive. Thank you for that. Bush Kitty shares about her compulsive behaviors, uh, trichotillomania. With every pulled out eyelash comes gratification and guilt, but never luck. About her codependency, you treat me like shit, but I need to be your shit in order to survive. Snapshot from her life, I didn't take a shower for an entire week because I lacked the energy to do so, and I was afraid that once I got in there, I would harm myself with a razor. Thank you for that. Wow. Thank you sending you some love. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Everything's Fine. I'm a, I'm a fan already. Um, uh, they're gender fluid. Uh, bisexual. 19. Raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, I would tend to disagree. I would say a highly dysfunctional environment and you'll probably agree with me. Um, after a... Merely a few sentences. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My parents have long had a strange relationship with privacy. If I walk in on them in the bathroom, which they strangely strangely refuse to lock, I'm furiously shouted at. But they are unapologetic when they enter my room unannounced, saying things like, it's nothing I haven't seen before. By the way, that is the catchphrase of the covert uh incestor and even now i'm an adult Uh, i have long been in the habit of waiting until they are downstairs or busy in the bathroom before i will change my clothes panicking about being able to change fast enough so they don't walk in on me in a state of undress both of my parents will also constantly comment on my pubic hair and its visibility in all fairness i am one hairy motherfucker which has made going to the pool with them a deeply uncomfortable and dreaded experience I have never thought this is strange, writing it off as just parents being parents, but since listening to the podcast, I've started to realize that sexual abuse is more than just about someone quote, putting a dick in a hole. Uh, she's not, or he, or I'm sorry, they are, uh, not sure if they've been uh, physically or emotionally abused. Uh, I'm still really struggling to define the boundaries of, quote, abuse. Listening to this podcast has started making me appreciate that things I previously dismissed still count. For people interviewed on the podcast, I can feel deep sympathy on more covert uh, abuse slash incest they suffered. But of course, for me and my things, I immediately think that my case must be different and I'm just being overdramatic. Emotional abuse is the most easily dismissed. I'm starting to believe my mother struggles with anger issues provoked by the smallest things, uh, a dishwasher that hasn't been unloaded, someone forgetting one of the eight tasks she assigned them, or just a bad day at work, and at random, she will shout and only shout at everyone, uh, criticizing all that they do and all that they are. Sometimes this will focus on one specific person, and when it's on you, even treading on eggshells doesn't seem to cut it. For not tidying my room, a crime no teenager has ever committed before, I would be shouted at, given furious, cold shoulder for a long time, then more gently told that I am inherently lazy and selfish, and will by this point be too emotionally exhausted and terrified to argue back. Later, these episodes will be followed up with an apology in the theme of, sorry, sometimes you just really frustrate me, I promise never to do it again, let's be friends now, accompanied by a hug and a lot of intimate touching. Um, that honestly just floods my system with even more adrenaline and the instinct to run i don't know what you mean by intimate touching um, but i'm gonna assume uh that it's uh creepy um i mean this is such horribly uh, such horrible emo- emotional uh abuse um there's not even a question as to whether or not it It is. Um, uh, More recently, I've been working through my confusion around sexuality and gender. I tried to approach this maturely and discuss it with my parents, not coming out to them so much as highlighting that some things might be a possibility and that I was thinking of exploring them. Their response? Tears, which I felt was justified. My parents telling me they no longer slept at night. Um, By the way i e my parents telling me that they want it to be all about them um that's basically what they're saying is don't you see this is all about us? This is about our sleep um, uh, my father telling me if I ever did anything, he would either he either wouldn't talk to me or he'd kill himself I mean listen to that and that you aren't sure if that's emotional abuse. That if you showed something, if you showed some part of yourself that was authentic, that displeased him, he would kill himself. Um... My mother telling me I shouldn't talk about it because of what my father might do. My mother saying I was forcing her between me and my father. My father repeatedly saying I'd upset him if I even mentioned gender, be it in the context of myself or someone completely unrelated. I got the hint. I've shut up about it now. I'll even wear dresses. Before this podcast, I never thought that could be counted as abuse. Honestly, I still don't think it's abuse. It's only the fact that I feel like crying as I type it out that I think that maybe it has some weight to it. Except, of course, I don't really believe that. I'm a pathetic and privileged and clutching at straws to justify my damage. The physical isn't much more than slaps, play punching, and threats of real punching. It's okay. Maybe my exercise addiction uh, will mean someday. Maybe there's a typo. I'll stand a chance of punching uh, back and then a question mark. Too dark? No. No. Nothing is too dark for this podcast. And I'm glad that you that you feel like crying uh, because that means you're starting to get in touch with the sadness that you keep pushing down and I believe is probably expressing itself in your exercise addiction. Um, I really hope that you can find people to connect to and let them see the authentic, beautiful you that is in there. Whether it's gender fluid... Whether it's whatever it is, it's you and it's beautiful and you deserve to be seen and felt and heard and loved. And it doesn't sound like your parents can do that and they have failed you. And I would talk to a therapist and find out ways that you can begin to, if not cut them out of your life, um, minimize the pain of interacting with them and set boundaries and give them consequences and take care of yourself because you deserve love and you sound like a really sensitive, beautiful soul. And we're rooting for you. We're rooting for you. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My family can be very loving and is extremely generous in terms of material wealth. Uh, my parents are helping to fund my future university course. Uh, another thing they threatened to take away if I explored my identity. Uh, and as a middle, a white middle class, straight A student, I have all of my physical needs and more well catered to. Uh, there can be real sweet emotional moments too, and I recognize fully that my parents try, or certainly say they try, to help me. I think a lot of their anger comes from a place of love, but sometimes. Th- That fact makes it worse because I can't just paint them as villains in my head. They're my parents. Like it or not, I see them in me and it terrifies me that I will ever have to care for a child. Uh, if I ever have to care for a child, that will be the only way to show love. Um, if you're really afraid of that, then let that be, let that be another reason in the pro column to, to get help um and your parents paying for your school and taking care of your physical needs is not a favor on their part that's part of their duty that that is an implicit duty When you bring a child into the world and to care for it emotionally and guide it and nurture it and protect it, not to belittle it and control it and view it as an extension of your own views and needs and ego. Darkest thoughts. I think about physically attacking my parents a lot. I got to tell you, I'm thinking about physically attacking your parents a lot. Uh, or screaming at them just how hurt I can feel around them, but I know they'd win the fight or turn my hurt around on me, which really kind of ruins the power fantasy. So instead, I daydream about relapsing with my anorexia, about getting so ill, it's no wonder I scream and want to die. I'm taken away from them and put into inpatient treatment where people tell me expressing my feelings is good, where saying I'm hurting isn't met with, well, you're in a place right now where everything you think about revolves around you, wow, I mean, your parents are projecting their selfishness and narcissism onto you. So, oh, and instead, I am encouraged to try and make sense of every feeling I've been burying. And the worst part is a piece of me gets off on the idea of knowing how devastated my parents would be if I relapsed, even though I could never do that to them. Darkest Secrets. I think I may have sexually abused my last boyfriend. I was 16 and I didn't know as much about sex as I thought I did. I was really just using him to explore the world of sex rather than because I loved him, but I was very aware of issues surrounding consent. I constantly asked him if he was okay, if he wanted to stop, and so forth. He said he wanted to keep going as I was giving him a blowjob, but in retrospect, he seemed so uncomfortable and so upset. He never came, despite me trying to get him off twice for nearly half an hour and both times he ended it vaguely by just saying that he couldn't. Couldn't what? I don't know. At the time, I thought his reactions were sexual arousal or the uncertainty of breaching new territory. Now I'm petrified that my eagerness to try these new things pressured him into it and then I've scarred him for life. I'm a huge advocate of the importance of consent, and view rape as one of the most evil and horrific things a person could do, and always have done. The idea that I did something like that appalls me. I feel like the sexual world makes no sense. Am I just terrible at reading people? I think, first of all, it it, you know, reading this, I, you are not the monster that you that you think you are. Um. It, we don't know everything about people's body language and tone of voice and and I have so many times in my past done what you did and I beat myself up for it all the time and I want to tell you what People tell me when I dwell on it and that is are you still doing it today to which I would say no and they would say then forgive yourself forgive yourself for being human and you are clearly somebody who is empathetic and you were young you were 16 please forgive yourself um And it might even help you to, if you can still get in touch with him, to have an open conversation with him about it and say, you know, I've been thinking about this lately and I'm wondering if I missed something there. Anyway. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Ironically, before my anorexia developed, I fantasized solely and vividly About being with an overweight or obese partner. Part of the turn on was the idea that the partner, uh, of that partner being shamed, whilst arousal also came from imagining being the person to accept them and cherish them despite this aspect that they were insecure about. I no longer feel comfortable imagining this with my recent issues around weight and body shame. Instead, my brain seems to be dragging itself down darker and darker rabbit holes rough sex, forced sex, exhibitionism, everything from a vanilla bit of mind-blowing oral sex to someone being forced to vomit, then splayed in their own mess. Side note, I really hope these kinks are going to develop into some ironic mental disorder, else I'm fucked, no pun intended. The only common theme is that I'm not involved. It's other people, other characters. The minute my brain tries to put me into these situations, I feel gross, ashamed, and the concept of myself in a sexual situation where I am comfortable and aroused is so alien and unknown that it kills my buzz right away. What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my mother how she has hurt me, but this time I wouldn't backtrack or apologize the moment she says I'm selfish or making things up. I'd stick to my guns and I would love to not feel guilty about it. You can get there. It's going to take work because there's a lot of hard wiring that has to be unwired but you can get there and you will feel so fucking empowered and you will feel so differently about life you will view the world differently you will feel you will view yourself differently and and if anything you might have more compassion for your parents but in a healthy way instead of excusing their behavior um while letting them walk on you. That's not kindness. That's not love. That's enabling sick people. Um, but by setting boundaries and giving them consequences, um, I, I would love to see you say, hey, if you want to have um, a relationship with me, we're going to uh counseling, the three of us together, once a week, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And... Yeah. Thank you. Your survey really moved me. Really moved me. Twisted Twin shares about her ADD. Typing a survey on an iPad. Dog walks in. Got to get up and check the water dish. Found an old photo bill. Checked my car for the wallet. Where's my iPad? Perfect. Perfect. Lauren shares a happy moment. These are the two happy moments I told you about that when I read them today. Um I just started crying. And I'm not they're beautiful. Maybe it's a place I'm in lately. Um I don't know. But it felt so fucking good, so I want to thank you. I think I had some backed up uh backed up tears Uh, this first one's from lauren and she writes i was just introduced to your podcast i have not been sexually abused Uh, i have just listened to episode number 58 it is clear to me that's the first episode with dr jessica zucker where uh, some light bulbs go on in my head about things i experienced um as a kid involving my mom it is clear to me that our culture has permitted us to be emotionally malnourished. Your program challenges that cultural dysfunction. At face value, my message does not resemble a happy a happy moment. Listening to your truth in episode 58, specifically the points in the podcast where you and Jessica acknowledged and protected the child in you, those were happy moments for me. I learned a couple of years ago that my strong desire to be a mother is intimately tied to my desire to be a mother to myself, protecting myself from those elements of life and people that violate my sense of safety. Thank you for creating a truthful, honest, authentic space where people can be who they are and care about the things that matter and affect them deeply. I feel so much love and respect for you. Thank you, Paul. Please know that what you do is incredibly powerful. You are a beautiful human. This one is from Anna Karenina. One of the most important tools in my emotional health toolbox is a deep tissue massage. I have a regular massage therapist, Bill, who now knows perfectly where I hold all my tension. He is expert at using a variety of techniques to loosen up the tight muscles. After each of Bill's massages, I am perfectly giddy as the endorphins race through my bloodstream. 2016 has been a difficult year. My husband herniated a few more discs in his back, which leaves him in constant high-grade pain. The pain is so debilitating that he had to leave his job and now lies on the floor nearly all day, feeling desperate, lonely, and depressed. I try not to take on his pain as my own, but when you see your loved one sobbing every day because of physical pain and depression, it can make you feel powerless. He's on antidepressants, goes to counseling, and is searching for a medical solution, but until he finds an appropriate medical solution, it's just awful due to the loss of my husband's salary, we've tightened our belts. One example of the belt tightening is less frequent massages from Bill. I didn't tell Bill why I was seeing him less frequently as I didn't want him to pity me. One night, Bill rings me up and says that he's been confused as of late as to why I'm getting less frequent massage when my neck and back are tighter than ever. He asked if I'd cut my massage massage sessions due to less household income. After telling Bill that his hunch was right, he said that he can tell I really need the massage now more than ever, and that I'm not only a customer, but a friend, so that we can return to our previous massage schedule, and that every other massage will now be free. I quickly took him up on the offer and thanked him. As soon as I hung up the phone, I began to cry happy tears. I was incredibly touched by his kindness and generosity. The entire situation reminded me of something you say on the podcast. That's when we share our struggles with others, it gives them the opportunity to be of service and it allows a deeper relationship. Wow, oh, thank you. Thank you for that. And I, I, I bet he feels so good about himself too. You know, when he, when he gives you those massages for free and sees how it helps you and but why is it so hard for us i think i think you nailed it when you said you didn't want him to pity you i wish that we could find a clearer way to understand the difference between letting somebody be of service to us and them pitying us um I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is, but, and I'm sorry that your husband is suffering. I I really hope. I I, I hope he doesn't hear this because he's going to be like, how the fuck is this a happy moment? Fuck all of you guys. Oh, uh, just thank all you guys for your your surveys tonight and your support and your feedback and um. I'm just so grateful. I'm just so grateful. There is not a single night that I record this podcast in the last five years. There's not been a single night that I haven't felt more peaceful when I finish it, more connected to the universe through you guys, more meaning and purpose in my life and less alone. And yeah, yeah. Now go fuck yourselves. That's right. I know you're thinking, well, Paul, there's no way you're going to end this thing with just to go fuck yourself. Now you're going to say, you know, you're not alone. Uh, Reach out for help. Um, You never have been alone. Get outside your comfort zone. It can change your life. Uh, Thank you for listening. No. No, you saw too much of nice, Paul in the last five minutes, and, uh, I can't have that. No, I can't end on that. (laughs) I can't. Now I want to rewind it. We should just fade out on me fucking beating myself up. Do I go back and rewind? I know I can do a better ending than that, but maybe that was authentic. I hate my mind. I hate my brain. Ugh, Herbert. Comfort me. Where's your butthole?
3: Bizarrely, beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely, beautifully fucked up in some weird way.